Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is two, episode 298. We have Emily Kwok on the show today. Man, it was good talking to her. She's done so much for women's jiu-jitsu specifically, but jiu-jitsu in general. Uh, so stick around for the interview. I'm on here with my good buddies, Byron Jabara and Gary Hall. And as you know, they had their professional wrestling debut last week. <laughs> they did okay, but they both suffered blows to the head and have some lingering uh, symptoms. Byron thinks he's a Canadian trapper, and Gary can't talk in any other way than he thinks he's a nine-year-old girl. So we're going to try to get through this, but I'm not sure how it's going to go. Guys, how you doing? Really, really good. I got <laughs> so, Byron, how about you? Doing good. I've, I, I've had things better. I got my my foot in the bear trap right now. I'm trying to get that thing, uh, get the release button uh, pushed down here. Are you, I thought you were Canadian trapper. Are you uh, from Tennessee now? Well, oh, de- it's a long story. <laughs> I can't do a Canadian voice. He, he's No, he's he's Canadian Tennessee, and, and that's what makes Byron so great. I mean, he's just an incredible Canadian Tennessee trapper. I'm just and a trapper you guys trapper. took a good stab at that. That was pretty bad. <laughs> but, you know, you think about, you know, Byron being Canadian trapper. I mean, what's the difference between trap being a Canadian trapper or jujitsu? I mean, you roll with somebody, they set you up. You go down the path, and uh, you're caught in a trap, and the uh, next thing you know, you're you're being submitted, and, and that's what makes Byron so great. Well, thanks, uh, Gary. Uh, you're welcome. Trying to invent some techniques like the bear trap and that sort of thing. Well, you know, speaking of your techniques there that you've invented, you know, we can talk about your audio book, Six Games for BJJ. Uh, we have a link to it on the show notes. And uh, basically, Byron made this uh, for blue belts and above. Um, if you're a white belt, you could probably still get a lot of uh, use from it. But, um, you know, as we're rolling, uh, you kind of go through the same motions every day. And what this is doing is it's trying to bring some fun into your practices and get you better. Um, sometimes your training partners know what you're doing. Sometimes they don't. Um but it's going to make you better. It's going to make your training partners better. And I can attest to this wholeheartedly. Uh, I train with Byron a lot. Um, and one of Byron's favorite ones to do is, uh, what do you call it, Byron? Uh, where you you do everything to the opposite side. Uh, Byron, what's the name of it? I forgot. Probably uh, Backwards Grappler. Backwards Grappler. Uh, so basically, Byron, you know, instead of passing to one side, we all have a better side we pass to. Byron, when he's rolling with me, will pass to the other side. It makes Byron better, and it makes me better. My other side has gotten so much better, uh, you know, to prevent the pass. My frames have got better. And, you know, I know when Byron first started doing this, I had no clue, you know, that it was on his book right there. I just thought Byron was really competitive and was getting mad and, and wanted to find a way to beat me. And But the crazy thing about that is while Byron's doing it, I decided I'm going to get better so Byron can't pass that way. So, uh, you know, I kept working on it on my off time and trying to get better. And uh, it has made me a better grappler. I still am so much better on one side than I am on the other. But, you know, it's, head, you know, night and day from where I was before. So uh, check it out. We have a link to it on show notes. Six games for BJJ. Byron's second audiobook. Uh, this one was a New York Times bestseller, just like his first one. But um, so check it out. 
Help your game. <laughs> it was not a New York Times. Bestseller. Man, we got so close when this thing came out, didn't we, Gary? Well, yeah, really got close. The, the, I think one of the cool things about the backwards grappler is you know how to do the techniques to the, the side you're used to. So the knowledge is there. It's just the, the ability to perform them is not there. So to bridge that gap, because there's there's two gaps you have to do to bridge in jujitsu. You have to learn the technique, like to, to know how it works and how to perform it. Then you have to perform the technique. So you learn the technique and you could do a right-handed armbar every time, but left-handed armbar will be a little bit confusing for you. Your body will be a little unfamiliar with it. So you'll have to change uh, some things or, or just kind of relearn it with your body. But you, the technique itself, you know, I need to control the head in this way. Uh, this hand should go here. It feels different because it's the wrong hand. I need to twist this way instead of that way. But, but half of the learning is already done because you know the techniques you want to do, but to get them to work with your body. And a lot of times you find the cool things will pop up because you're, you're doing them the other way, but you still want to use your good hand to do something and it turns out to be really good in that way. I've, I've found a lot of uh, benefit from doing this from time to time with my, uh, with my, really, my, my brick style of techniques, my really good techniques. If I do them backwards, man, I really explore deep into my own game and, and uh, really, really been a big benefit to me. Like sometimes I'll set these traps on the west side of the mountain and, and they tend to get triggered uh, more in the mornings when it's still kind of shady. But then if I set the same traps on the east side of the mountain, I'll try, I'll catch different animals. It's like a totally different thing and a different time frame and a different thing. And, and I'm selling uh, like beaver pelts one, one day. And, and, uh, uh, I almost caught the, the Sasquatch and that was on a West side trap. I've never even tried the West side traps. <laughs> that was crap. <laughs> uh, Byron, but I, one thing I did want to ask you, you know, cause I know you're such a great trapper. Have you ever caught a wounded cougar? And a trapper keeper. Yeah. Okay. I had I had uh, a picture of that in my in my seventh grade trapper keeper keeper and uh, that was the closest I got. I I've in reality I've never trapped anything. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> my dad used to catch squirrels in a, in a trap, but uh, <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> I, I, you know, Joe has been sharing stories uh, from uh, his time. Uh, as uh, a fisherman, a commercial fisherman, and, and that sort of thing, and 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 Gary has shared some stories as well about different things, and and I want uh, not so much a story, but just a lesson I've learned through. I like to read a lot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I read. Uh, one of the books I'm rereading is Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> <laughs> fish, two fish, red fish. <laughs> One of the books I'm reading is The Culture Code, and that's one of my favorite authors, Daniel Coyle. Uh, he wrote the book that everybody's sort of uh, the, the talent code, where he really breaks down how to get talent. And this book is more about how to develop a, a culture in uh, in a place that has has high success. And it's, it's a lot of insightful things, and, and I'm really learning a lot. But I'll, I'll share with you just a little bit about um, uh, Coach Greg Popovich, uh, coach of the Spurs. And, and they're like, I don't know much about basketball, definitely don't know much about NBA basketball. But as far as ability to win things, it's like, this. I guess the Spurs are like the winningest team of anything. Like percent-wise and ability and, and, and high-performing games. That, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. But amazing coach. And and something that, that Popovich does, he's, he's kind of – 
sometimes he seems upset. Sometimes he seems happy. Sometimes he's 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 hard on this hard on his uh, athletes. But but one thing that he does is he'll thank the athletes for allowing them to be their coach. And man, I thought that when in that part of of the book it just hit me. It's like that is amazing. I I, I always struggle when. When talking with a, a competitor who's coming off of a loss, you know they're walking off the mat and they're a little upset, and and I don't know if this is the right time to say it, but like maybe later on that day, just hey, you went out there, you did your best, you had a lot of heart. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of your game plan. Thank you for allowing me to be you know on your corner. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of you, man. That that's something that I, that I think that anyone would be happy to hear because part of being a disappointed athlete is is feeling like you might have let your coach down. And if you know, if the coach is bringing that sort of thing, I mean, I think that's a powerful tool that, that makes the environment uh, at the school a much stronger one. Byron, that's uh, crazy you brought up about Popovich, uh, you know, being such a great coach. Um, first of all, I do want you to know that I coach a, a kid's basketball team, and we do play the Spurs next week. The Wichita <laughs> Spurs, not the San Antonio Spurs, but... I am a little worried because I, the Spurs are a good team. Um, but when you were talking about Popovich there, uh, what I thought was crazy is I just finished uh, a year-long uh, uh, training, leadership training that I've done for work. And, uh, you know, we had to give, you know, presentations throughout it. And one guy gave a, like an hour-long presentation on Popovich. And, uh, you know, I never realized, you know, how great of a coach he was and uh, you know so I sat through an hour presentation and then here you bringing it up you know from Daniel Coyle and you know Daniel Coyle somebody I really respect and you know I know uh, uh, you know he does his research and you know he knows who brings out the talent um, but uh, yeah that's uh, uh, it, it, like you said you know thanking the players for let you know thanking you know telling the players thank you for letting me be your coach Um you know, you're going to get buy-in. You're going to get, you know, a family atmosphere, a team atmosphere. Um, it just, you know, that's just going to breed success. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it really is amazing how important culture is. And so if you look at the Spurs or if you talk to NBA fans, that's what the Spurs are really known for is having a good culture. And, man, think about, I don't know who all you guys have up there, but down here, you know, we've got uh, – Alliance is pretty strong. Um, Gracie Baja, BTT, the the schools down here, the ones that are really strong competitors. If you visit them, the culture is apparent when you get there. You know everything's neat, orderly, on time, um, positive attitudes, and, and you know no 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 laying back. It's just work, 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 and you can tell that atmosphere is there, that uh, culture is there, and then it shows in the big tournaments. Those are the schools that are. Oh, or, you know, high on the podium every time. Joe, I like you how you brought, you know, culture, you know, from uh, Byron talking about uh, Daniel Coyle there. You brought culture back to show how it breeds success. And uh, and then you brought it back to jujitsu. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It seems like the uh, schools that are always on the podium, you know, have that culture, have that like no nonsense family culture, you know, you, like you said, you just get to work, but everybody's got each other's back. Everybody's there to make each and every one of one of the people in the gym better. 
Yeah, it goes it goes beyond uh, teaching how to shoot a free throw and and teaching how to you know do an arm bar that sort of thing. Uh, building that relationship with students and and building that having them build a relationship with each other and and trust and all these things. Man, this book, <laughs> I really enjoy it. it. I know it's not as big as as Daniel, some of Daniel Quill's other books, but uh, I think it's it's it should be because Billy, the culture in a jujitsu club is 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 extremely important and it can be changed and it can be changed in a good way or a bad way based on who's there. And, it, and they've got, I could, I could talk about this next week. I don't know if I will or not, but they have so many different uh, experiments they've run with, with culture and small settings. And, and, and they, I don't know, they do some really cool things in the, in the book. I'm a big fan of it, but uh, it's, I don't know, one more with, with uh, Popovich. Uh, I guess, you know, sometimes you, I don't. I really. I've never seen him. <laughs> I've never. I just. I just know of him from the book. I don't watch basketball, but uh, like I guess one time a player kind of messed up or whatever, and he goes over there and he kind of wrestles with him a little bit, and and fit like this older man is wrestling with this NBA basketball player, kind of just horsing around, and and somebody goes, "What's he doing?" And he and like he's making sure he's okay. Like it. It's not something that you would think that a coach would do. Is kind of just you know. Uh, I don't know. I don't think he did like a double leg. Like he just kind of like got That's physical right. with the person and kind of put like just just play a little bit. And he's checking to make sure that his player was in was okay with how things turned out, even though it didn't turn out well. Like still showing some love. And and I don't really know. <laughs> like I've said a couple times, I'm not a basketball guy, but from the book, it sounds like the things he's doing. Or has done. I don't even know if he's still a coach anymore. <laughs> or, 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 or worth studying. Yeah, you know, I, I liked your your topic this weekend, Byron. Like you, you were saying, you like to reread books. You know, words are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. And you know, that's something that uh, Rudyard Kipling said. What do you think about that quote, Byron? Let's make that the quote of the week. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And so that could be like the, the powerful drug that you say to a student to motivate them. That could be the, the the powerful drug you say to a student to help them learn something. Sometimes just the words you use have a large effect on somebody, good or bad. And it, on the mat, off the mat, your words are important. Well, I hate to be disagreeable here. <laughs> I just I, I I guess I can see the logic of this, but you got to be careful. Especially we've talked a little bit already about culture at the gym and coaches and relationships. And uh, if your if your actions don't back up your words, then that's it true. Means nothing. So I, I guess there's two sides to this point. And you won the internet again <laughs> Dang, today. Joe. This is like two weeks in a row. Joe, you should be a philosopher. But yeah, I, I like that. You know. You know, words. I, I've seen so many people. How many times have we talked um, about people who are all talk, uh, but no action behind it? And so, uh, you know, words and actions are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. And that's Joe Thomas. Yeah, you know, because really, I think about it. I, I see training partners every now and then in town that I haven't seen for a while. And I'm like, hey, you got to come by the gym. And they say, yeah, I'll be there Wednesday. I love to hear that, but then Wednesday after Wednesday, if they don't show up, then eventually it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all heard that a lot. So I'm trying to think think about uh, what you're saying and what you're, you know, that's true. Actions are a, 
a huge deal. It, it kind of, to me, it depends on on the situation. And it definitely, if, if you're a person of shallow words, then literally your words don't hold the weight. But if if you're a person that is coming from a place of respect, and and you've earned that, um, to me, when when somebody I respect says something to me, a lot of times it, it could be life changing. And I don't need them to necessarily do something for me or to you know even show me something or whatever. Just just words. Like a lot of times we'll, we'll do an interview and the person will say, I, I really enjoy what you guys are doing with the podcast. I think it's helping jujitsu. And just a simple thing like that. Like, okay, this person is, a, is aware of the show. That's pretty, pretty cool. And they agree with what we're doing. And, and man, you know, like this isn't a money-making venture we're doing here. It, it, oh, it is for Joe and I. That's true. You guys are getting paid even less. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Joe and I, you're going to hear about the uh, the uh, uh, Joe and I uh, stealing money from the from the podcast here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> I used yeah, to bait my my traps with money, but all I would catch is like some people, and I'm really wanting you know animals instead, and they don't they don't fall for that sort of thing. So you're going to use you know like rotting fish. <laughs> I have all no right. idea where I was right, before Trevor, that. Jim. Yeah. <laughs> But, Byron, I see where you're coming from, too. You know, you think of some really powerful speakers uh, that, you know, we've had through the world who say stuff and, you know, get people to action. You know, a very powerful drug. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm that guy. I, I do like to, you know, see action behind it. You know, if you're going to go, you know, tell me, you, you got to have that respect. I think you just mentioned it, Byron, or you, Joe. Uh you know, the people almost have to have that respect, know that you've done it, know that you've been there before. Um, and that kind of gives me a, a little thing that I was going through this weekend. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I coach a help coach a basketball team and, uh, you know, we were just getting blown out. Uh, we were down by like 30 points with like, you know, 10 minutes left in the game. And, you know, I'm talking to my team and I'm talking to them like, they're jujitsu guys, MMA guys. And, you know, it got to the point, you know, this other team was so much bigger, so much stronger than us. You know, I just tried to appeal to their heart. You know, I was like, Hey guys, man, just have some heart, just go out there and just, you know, just play, just go crazy for the last 10 minutes. Let's, uh, let's just go out there and show these guys. We're not scared. And, uh, double leg blast. You know, I mean, to be honest, I, I got one kid that's a wrestler and he doesn't start, but, you know, I'll, I'll sit with him and talk to him on the bench, you know, while he's, you know, while he's not playing and, you know, we'll go over what he's supposed to be doing when he gets in there. But I always tell him, I was like, hey, you're a wrestler. You know, I was like, there ain't nobody who's got the guts that you have. Just go out there and just go crazy. Just play D like you want to believe. Box people out, throw people around and, and he will do it. Like he's one guy who gets it. But, you know, so I, I started, you know, during a timeout, you know, telling people, come on, let's just have some heart. I had like three or four guys look at me and it's like, you can't have heart. Uh, that's not going to help us beat these guys. And, you know, it made me think these kids don't know me that well. They, they probably don't know that I've ever played basketball. Don't really have respect for me. Uh, you know, it's something I have to earn. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know. I, it was one thing that's been bothering me all weekend, uh, uh, that, you know, I had trouble communicating that to them. So, uh, uh, maybe, maybe that's what it is. No, I don't, I don't think that's it, Gary. I don't think it's cause they don't respect you. <laughs> give yeah. it, give it some time, man. Uh, yeah, I just, 
I, it was just weird. Like, I, you know, I'm just that guy, like normally I can get people going, you know, uh, get them fired up by that. But yeah, yeah this well, one, it might be a little to... different. It might be different. The audience I have, you know, jujitsu, you know, versus basketball, you know, maybe a little different audience too. Um, but, uh, I kind of almost treat it like, uh, you know, jujitsu. Um, but you know, I kind of think they go in the same boat, but, uh, yeah, I really had a hard time getting that one across and, we still ended up losing by 30. <laughs> so, but, okay, to, to bring this, like, the Popovich, in, into the game, all the kids bring it in and, and say, you guys, that last half or the last 10 minutes, you guys played really hard. You played your best. You guys didn't give up. Thank you for being my, uh, for letting me coach you guys. Uh, I'm proud of you guys for that last half. We couldn't make up the deficit, but you guys, you guys fought hard. Like, that would be, I think that would be, that'd be pretty neat to hear that as a, as a little kid, even after a loss, like yeah, coach is coach is happy that we, we tried so hard. You know, the one thing I think that happened is we actually had two games. Um, we lost the first game. It was really close. We were supposed to get blown out the first game. Um, we ended up, I've got two players that, you know, can't play with us anymore. And, uh, so we just lost them, which, you know, were our two best players. And that first game, I was never so proud of our team. They just played, you know, heart like they had so much heart and you know i talked about it so much that game i think you know i was going to the same thing too much you know so when i went to it the second game you know first of all i think they were tired and second of all i i went down that same path too many times but that first game that's you know kind of what i what i was trying to do you know more of it and you know we we kind of got i'm the assistant coach the the coach he's kind of uh kind of rough on the kids uh, you know I, I don't know I think maybe a little rough to a fault um, so I always try to be the guy who you know when they come to the bench you know try to cheer them up you know tell them what they did well um, you know because they're always just hearing what they didn't do that well um, so you know I'm trying to tell them what they're doing well and and you know we got some guys you know we're playing in an advanced league and we got some guys that maybe shouldn't even be in the you know, in this league, it may be a little step above them, but like what I always tell those guys is, you know, heart, you know, enthusiasm, uh, just playing as hard as you possibly can, can make up for all those differences. And, uh, you know, you belong out there, um, just by the way you play. Gary, I, I'd let you coach valuable me. lessons. I, I don't think I'd want to coach you, Byron. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be a rough, you know, a rough job for me. The last um, but, last time is about a year ago. I shot free throws. I shot ten of them. I think I made one or two. I know I made at least one, but I don't. I did make more than two. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Byron, you're definitely not a professional on the basketball court, but Joe is getting ready to do an interview with a professional on the mat. Let's have uh, Emily Quack. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. They were going to make a movie about me, but no actor or stuntman could move like me. And I don't know how to act. I'm always real. One time after training, I forgot to shower, and I got a phone call from the Center for Disease Control. Two guys in a biosuit showed up and sprayed me down. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do... I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends.
BJJ Brick listeners, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Emily Kwok. Emily, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Uh, this is our second run at it. I had technical difficulties. In the first run, we talked about how the weather was. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, give us a quick uh, introduction to who you are, how you got started in jiu-jitsu, and, and kind of your the path that led you to where you are now. Yeah, so um, I started training jiu-jitsu in about 2000, 2001 in, uh, in Canada on the West Coast in a, in a city called Vancouver. Um, when I started out, I started probably like most people start in jujitsu where I was just looking for a different kind of activity and was willing to try something new. And, uh, I picked it up on sort of a hobbyist basis thinking, you know, this, this seems kind of fun. And, um, at the time I started training under a blue belt and, uh, that was, you know, there was, there wasn't a lot being offered at that time in Vancouver, let alone the rest of the country. And, um, over the years, it took me on sort of an obsessive, obsessive journey, if you will, of training more and more in different places and, uh, moving from Vancouver to New York to Tokyo and, uh, keeping my training up and competing in jujitsu, then a little bit of MMA, uh, back in the day and then back into jujitsu and it, um, I, I ended up on the East coast of, uh, of the United States where I am now in New Jersey um, permanently in 2006. And, uh, I never moved for jujitsu. Uh, I always moved because I had some sort of other life experience that was drawing me away. Um, but jujitsu was a huge part of my life and it was often, um, an anchor and a determining factor on how happy I was where I was. And, um, you know, since 2006, I've sort of grown roots out on the East coast and I now have uh, a school in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, I, I represent Marcelo Garcia. And so, you know, for a time I was working and training up there full time. And, and now I, I, I manage my place in New Jersey, work from home, doing some other things and uh, uh, get down to the city and get my, my butt handed to me every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I guess even, even at black belt level, you need that now and then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, so... So what uh, took you to Tokyo and how did you go about finding training? Because you said it wasn't jiu-jitsu related. So were you able to find training there and what was that like? Yeah, so I uh, a lot of people don't know this, but my, uh, my, my degree is actually in fine arts. And so I was, uh, I was a painter and a printmaker many, many years ago. Um, and, I, and I loved art. And so I went to art school in Vancouver, which is what drew me to New York City in the first place. And I went back and forth between Vancouver and New York for a number of years, finished my degree, and then I was no longer eligible to come back to New York legally on a student work visa, which is what I'd been doing for about three years. And I got a bit depressed back home because I wanted to see the world. And I, I was really drawn to the energy in New York and Vancouver, though some people would call me crazy, um, you know, was a smaller city. Uh, I felt quite locked in and bored there, even though it's, it's a gem of a place to be, but I just wanted more stimulation and I'm half Japanese and half Chinese. And my mother had suggested in my frustration, why don't you try moving to Tokyo? And I said, uh, I don't want to go. I've been to Japan so many times. It's not that interesting to me. I want to go back to New York. And she said, yeah, but if you can't go, why don't you just try? 
So I figured at that time, um, any, any place was better than being in Vancouver. So, um, I, I just got on the internet the early days and, and looked for something to do on the other side of the world. And, uh, at the time there was quite a boom in Japan for English, uh, teachers to, to come work at private and public institutions. And uh, I applied at a few and three weeks later I was, uh, I had an interview, I was hired. And three months later I was on a plane to go live in Tokyo for a year. And I just figured why not go on this adventure? I was 24 I had no commitments and, um, my mother's side of the family is still in Japan and I was raised speaking Japanese. So I thought, you know what, let me get over there, see if I can connect to this other side of myself uh, on a deeper level and, um, just, you know, see, see what, where life takes me. And so that's what brought me to Tokyo, which, uh, that year I often expressed to people was the worst year of my life, but the most worthwhile, um, I hated it. It was, uh, it's a very patriarchal culture and homogenous, right? And so it's a bit difficult when you look like everybody else, but you don't really think like anybody else. <laughs> and, um, they, I had a really hard time adjusting because, um, I think even by Western standards, I'm probably not, I'm not a wallflower. Um, and I, I, yeah, I had a really hard time there because not only was, uh, I, I think the gender roles are, are quite different there. And, and so I was, ex- some, something different was expected of me. And, uh, it just, it was like fitting a square peg into a, a circle, um, hole, you know, like it just, it didn't work. <clears throat> and, um, I found myself quite depressed for the first six months, um, crying every day. Uh, about how miserable I was, but I am not somebody who signs up for something and doesn't do it, you know? So I had made a one year commitment and I was going to finish it out. And, uh, the only thing that kept me there and kept me sane was training jujitsu. And I was a blue belt when I arrived, um, through the kindness of some friends in the jujitsu community. Uh, I had met Amal Easton at a seminar, uh, as a blue belt, And when he heard that I was going to go to Japan, had said, you know, I have some friends I could put you in contact with that could help you find a school. And so he put me in contact with um, a gentleman named Takahiro Iso, uh, whose family, I believe, has a lot to do with running the Isami brand and Reversal brand in in Japan. And uh, he then also introduced me to a gentleman named Kinya Hashimoto, who at the time was uh, really, really passionate about jujitsu and interested in spreading um, the gospel, if you will. And so he was writing for magazines and taking photographs and was just a huge fan of the sport. And so the two of them helped me settle in uh, when I got to Japan. And uh, they found a school that would be within commutable distance of where I worked and lived. And I uh, began training under Takashi Ochi at uh, Paraistra Koiwa, which was a branch of Yuki Nakai's network, which... Uh, People who are old school uh, MMA fans know that um, he's quite quite a legend. And so uh, I stayed there for a year. And my teacher, Ochi-san, uh, spoke a little bit of English. He himself was a very educated uh, scientist and uh, had left his very stable uh, career to open a jiu-jitsu gym, which I think um, some people thought was quite interesting. But he, he had a great little gym. 
And uh, I had about three or four other foreign workers that wanted to learn jujitsu with me. So I, it was me and like three or four guys. And uh, we had very late schedules that would have us teaching until nine o'clock. And Ochi-san created a class for us at 1030 at night just to teach the group of us. Uh, and he would try to teach some of it in English as well, um, just so that we would have a place to train. And so we would all, uh, we worked in different schools, but as soon as we were done working, we got on that train, busted over to a studio, trained for an hour, and then managed to just jump on the last train home before the um, metro would shut down for the evening. So, um, so yeah, so that kept me sane and stable. And Kenya and Ochi-san took me to various tournaments and, Kenya was also uh, at the time involved with the original all-female card promotion for MMA called Smack Girl. I know it's an interesting name, but uh, <laughs> but if you if you were around back then, that was uh, that was a big deal. And so I uh, I always I was saying like I'll try almost anything once. And I had always been curious about fighting MMA, so Kenya had me fight a an amateur fight and then a pro fight in Korea. Uh, so that was my brief venture into the MMA world, which was successful. Um, and, uh, yeah, th th that sort of summarized my adventures in Japan and I came home as a purple belt. So awesome. it, was, it was good times. Awesome. What was the, uh, rule set, uh, the, the, the rounds, the timing of the rounds and all that of the women's MMA at that time where, where you were fighting? So my, my amateur fight was two rounds at four minutes no striking to the head. And, uh, the, I was about 145 pounds and the person that I fought was about 185 pounds. Um, the, they couldn't find a lot of opponent opponents for me because although 145 pounds, uh, or like 150 pounds is not, you're not a huge female, um, in North America, you're probably quite average, if not on the smaller end of average, but in Japan, you're like a giant. And so, um, when I was fighting, it had sort of already gone about that. Oh, I don't want to enter this tournament or fight Emily because she's so big and she's so strong. Uh, because most of the women there were, uh, probably like, I don't know, a buck 20. And, um, they had this one girl that was uh, a bit larger. And so I fought her and I won. Um, I can't remember what the ground rules were because I don't think I got, I was able to really get her to the ground. Um, but when I fought the pro match, so at the time they were trying to keep MMA exciting. And I think what always plagues jujitsu is that sometimes it doesn't, it's not really a spectator sport all the time. So when, uh, when we fought in the pro match in Korea, it was the first, uh, female MMA card in Korea. And, um, they had our matches at, I believe it was two rounds, five minutes, but 45 seconds on the ground. So if you can imagine how quickly you have to try and set up your submission, it's not about 45 seconds on the ground is not a lot of time. So, um, I, I beat, I beat the girl by, you know, throwing a lot of knees <laughs> and doing some unsavory things. Um, cause I was determined to win, but you know, I, in the first round, I had almost been able to finish her off the back, but I, I'd taken her back. I had my hooks in and I was working for a choke, but 45 seconds was just not enough time for me to, to really get it in. So, um, it was, it, I don't think that the rules were necessarily in my favor, um, or for any grappler for that matter, 
but um, that's that's what it that's what it took, I guess, in the early days to just sort of get jujitsu even out there and accepted, right? Right. Yeah. Not not only is forty five seconds a short time, but when your opponent knows that that's the amount of time they have to defend for, it yeah. becomes even shorter, right? Anybody can just turtle up and and put your defenses in and try and make it forty five seconds. So. Yeah, and this girl that I was fighting was. Um, she had she had fought many many times before. Was not necessarily um, uh, the best fighter because she wasn't really trained. Uh, I believe her her big her reputation was that she was a construction worker that just loved to fight. So she was really just a street fighter. So she might not have been the most skilled fighter, but she certainly was crazy tough and able to defend and hold her own. You know so. Um, it was, uh, needless to say, after the match was finished, we were, you know, she, I had beat up her legs and her stomach pretty badly. Um, but she didn't, she, she wouldn't give up, give up, you know? So it was, it was, a, it was definitely a tough fight. And I think for anyone that, uh, dreams of or imagines or contemplates this idea of fighting MMA, um, it's one thing to think about getting punched in the face totally different scenario when, when you're actually getting punched in the face and uh, kicked in your body. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so talk about self-control it, it, it has to, it has to be strong. <laughs> yes. So real, real quick. Uh, I was listening earlier to the interview you had done with Byron uh, five years or so ago for the BJJ brick. And I think at that point you had, one child and we're expecting more and you commented a little bit about uh how, how you were going to deal with kids and jujitsu so now we're five years later uh do you have kids in jujitsu how are you approaching that yeah so i have uh, a five and a half year old saya and uh i have um, another gremlin who is three years old and her name is miyoki um, and you know, life is, life is crazy and hectic. And when I think about what I would like for my children to be involved in, I do, I, it's interesting at my school, um, in Princeton, we have a lot of parents who bring their children in to train. And what's fascinating to me is that the perspective of a lot of our parents is, I don't care if my child competes. I don't care, you know, if, if my child loves it. <laughs> I, I need my child to learn how to fight because this is a life skill. It's like swimming. It's a non-negotiable. And um, I never thought about jujitsu that way, I guess, because I came to it out of a passion and, and a love to learn um, the sport. And uh, when I think about my children, I, I don't want to... I don't want to influence their upbringing too much by telling them what to do because I, I grew up in a pretty strict Asian household where my parents had very strong opinions about what was good and bad for me to do. And I didn't usually agree with what they wanted me to do. And I would do it as a forced march. Um, so when I think about raising my own children, I would love for them to find a passion in life, whatever that might be. And uh, have that as a practice somehow to sort of express themselves. Granted, they're really young. And, you know, I also have feelings about how much you want to brainwash a child into believing that, you know, they should do activity A versus activity B. So I think about it as like foundation activities or things that they can, if they start these things now, um, how beneficial will it be for them later in life? So they're both in gymnastics. Uh, I want them to 
have some body awareness. And my youngest is still too small to really, you know, know what's going on. But my oldest one is really into um, feeling her body and, 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 and empowering herself by knowing what she can do. And I, and I started her in jujitsu. Our program starts at four years old. I started her in jujitsu at four and she wasn't really excited about it. She was smaller than most of the children and she would come home pretty defeated and say, uh, you know, mommy, I don't like this class. I don't like jujitsu because I'm too small and I'm, I can't, I can't keep up with the other kids. And, uh, I thought it was interesting that she was that uh, emotionally aware of why she didn't enjoy it. And so I left it alone. I never, I never really pushed it on her too much. We would just bring her like once a week. And so her preschool teacher had asked if, or her preschool director had asked if I would be interested in teaching a program out of the preschool. And I thought, yeah, you know, uh, that would be okay. So once a week, um, I started teaching jujitsu to her preschool class. And so there's a little group of four and five-year-olds and, uh, what we started to notice was the kids were enjoying it and they, they enjoy having a space to rough house. They enjoy having a space to let their energy out and to know how to be, to how to have boundaries and awareness about what's appropriate and not appropriate. And, uh, through that class, she started to really like jujitsu and we started to see that she was picking up the movements a little bit more. And then I asked her if she wanted to go again to class. And so, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of bribing and <laughs> my daughter says, uh, she, she's always asking me, can I buy this toy? Can I have that toy? And, and I'll tell her, you know, I have no problem getting you anything, but you have to understand that when you want things in life, they cost money and I have to work very hard to buy all these things for you. So if you want to get all these toys, you can totally have them, but you're going to have to work for them too. So if you want to buy something, you can save half the money and I'll, I'll put up the other half of the money. And she says, okay, so mommy, can I open up a lemonade stand at the school? And I said, um, sure. But if you're going to do that, you should probably train a little bit. So people know you. And she said, okay, well, how many times do I have to do it? And I said, five. So we're way beyond five lessons, way, way beyond. So I got to let her have her lemonade stand one of these days, but it got her back in the school and it motivated her enough to give it a try and to have some purpose. And now she actually really enjoys it. And, uh, what I was really, really surprised a few months ago, uh, one of our Brown belts, Cindy had, uh, offered to run a, a, a in-house kids tournament. And the idea was just to help the children have more contacts with their jujitsu and to familiarize themselves with some rules. And so it was a really successful event and I didn't actually ask my daughter if she wanted to do it. And she said, can I compete? I want to do the tournament. And I said, you do? And she's like, yes. And so I said, okay, if you want to do it. So we put her in and I was so proud of her because I was able to witness her fight. And she, what was, she didn't win any of her fights. She was still the smallest kid, but I was so proud of her for getting up each time and going back and fighting again and sort of demonstrating that she had that sort of grit and resilience to keep pushing forward, which I think as a parent is the thing that I want most for her in life is to understand that, you know, you might have the odds against you. Things might not be uh, perfect, but if you get knocked down, you should be able to pick yourself back up again without someone telling you to do it. You know, like it was, it was instinctive, which I was really, really happy about. And uh, I made a conscious decision as much as I wanted to, to not coach her 
and to allow the teachers that we have to coach her because uh, unless she comes to me at some point and asks me to teach her, I, I don't want to give her the pressure of me being her teacher or being that person in her life just yet because she's playing and she's kind of figuring it out. And I want her to enjoy jujitsu because she enjoys it. And I, and I worry sometimes maybe overly so that if I were to talk to her too much about it or teach her too much that she might feel the pressure of having to enjoy it because of me. And I would love for her to have her own path in it. So it's made me reflect a lot about, um, you know, students in general and, and the fact that I see a lot of people, uh, I want to care for them and I want to make them believe in their best selves. Uh, but the reality is it's not, it's not my journey, you know, like I've kind of had my own time at it. So trying to be the best resource and support network and to help people as they need help or as they ask for it, I feel is, is the best way that I can be as, as an instructor and guide them in their own process. So, yeah, I mean, having, having Saya do it has really taught me so much in a short period of time. Um, and Miyoki has expressed a lot of interest in doing it because her sister does it. And Miyoki's a bit of a tank. So I think, uh, she, she, she did her first full class last week at three. And, um, I think a lot of people were kind of shocked and amazed that she paid attention. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with the second one, but I, I have a feeling that we got to, we have, we do have a Ron Asterisk in the family. So yeah. <laughs> that, that's awesome. From, from my perspective, I've, I've raised four kids and made my share of mistakes doing it. The way that you're approaching uh, getting your kids on the mat to, to me is awesome. I really like it. I want to tie that back to something you said though, about your, the parents that are bringing kids to your school, a lot of them are bringing the kids because they, they need to learn how to fight. I assume part of that, they need to learn how to defend themselves, which I can relate to that. But when you're talking about your daughter having multiple matches against bigger kids and, and getting up every time, and, and that's the value of jujitsu, when parents come in and they bring their kid because I want them to learn how to fight, do, do you try and offer some education and say, well, that's not actually the biggest benefit you get from jujitsu? Or you, do you just enroll the kids and, and kind of step back and let the parents learn as they watch? That's a, that's a great question. We, um, so I think one thing that's really unique about my school, um, and, and this will probably tie into some of the subject material later, is that Art, my business partner and myself, have never run the school for profit. Uh, like that hasn't been our, our only, uh, motivation and neither one of us looks at the school as a venture to make our full-time income. So I say this because when finances are not a motivating factor to bring business in, it kind of allows you to build your school more so on principle and making the right fit and making sure that you stabilize the culture. And I think the way in which we've uh, built our reputation, the things that we choose to value and communicate, whether it be through our website or um, seminars or, or whatever it is, the presence that we have, um, I, I, I like to think of our school as sort of an opt-in culture where it's, it's a very conscious decision for somebody to say, I'm going to choose this school versus the other school. And um, I'm quite... I mean, people who know me know that I'm very candid and, uh, I, I try not to be rude, but I, I do think that sometimes my words can be a little slicing for people because I don't, I don't fluff it up. And I, I sometimes will tell people what they need to hear versus what they want to hear. 
That being said, when people choose to bring their families to us, um, I usually ask them how they found, found us, what their, um, expectations are. And I also just try to feel how receptive they are to hearing what we're about because, you know, as a business person, um, as much as I kind of want you to understand what we're about, it's, it's not my place to blast it in your face. Like you're coming to us and I feel like it's a little bit of a negotiation to see whether we're the right fit for each other. So, uh, I usually, you know, we offer everybody, uh, a couple free trial classes to feel our environment out. And during that time, you know, Art and I are usually around to talk with the parents. Sometimes we hop on the mats. And uh, one of the things that I like to do is just try to understand and get to know the families a little bit better. And if and when the moment is right and they seem open and receptive, then I'll sort of bring up some of the principles that we hope will be taught and, and learned within the course of their journey at our school. Um, because I, I think in the grand scheme of things, whether you're talking about jujitsu or you're talking about uh, other issues in, in uh, the media or politics, if you try to hammer into somebody who doesn't understand you and can't understand you because they don't have the same context and perspective in life, uh, trying to make them swallow your pill can be a really difficult thing. And I think a lot of times it can also cause people to reject what you're doing and leave. And so, uh, I usually try to listen and, um, sometimes I learn a lot, you know, and I try to hear what, what they're looking for. And I think about how we might best suit, suit their needs. And, and then I see what, if, and when I have something that I can offer that might make them understand our process better. And I have to say, like, we have an incredibly healthy culture at our school where we have really awesome retention rates. Like we don't, we don't really deal with a lot of, of attrition and people like wanting to leave because I think we take a lot of time in the beginning to make sure that we're a good fit for each other and that they're coming to us because they trust that we have something to teach them or their children and that we're respecting their needs. Um, and I think so much of that is, is able to happen because when someone walks through my doors, I'm not looking at them like a dollar sign and thinking how quickly I have to sell you. I want you to be with us. And so, um, so I, I think one of the things that I've always been able to do well is, is I'm socially aware and I like to be socially intelligent about things. And so, um, if I can, I try to make those people as comfortable as possible, uh, so that we can meet somewhere in the middle. But I, I do find that most people aren't, um, ignorant of, of my perspective or that, they don't want to see where we're coming from. I just think that what happens is when you don't know what you don't know, you come in and you might not exactly have the, the right language to express what you want, you know? And I think a lot of the times the families are on the same page as us. Um, and it's just a matter of kind of n figuring out where, where, where the dust settles and then bringing them along. So, so yeah, I think, but I think that's a really excellent question because I do think that a lot of, a lot of businesses, a lot of schools, uh, try to push their agenda on uh, prospective students really quickly and too soon. And I, I don't personally feel that's the right way. No, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about your culture. If, if you have a good, strong, positive culture, it sounds like if I came to your school with my six-year-old and wanted them to learn how to do some of that MMA fighting, 
that uh, I would either come around to your perspective within a few classes or yeah. I would, or I would take my kids someplace else. So, yeah. And I, and I do think that, um, I, I think a lot of people who are uneducated about martial arts or jujitsu per se. And when I say uneducated, I just mean that, you know, you know about jujitsu or you know about Taekwondo, but you've never done it. So it's just, it's sort of these preconceived notions of what you think it is. On the surface, fighting appears to be a very different thing, right? It's the same thing as like people who watch the UFC and then they go, I, I can't watch that. It's too bloody. And I'm like, but do you have, do you like understand it? Like, do you, have you ever really paid attention to how much strategy goes into the fights and what they're trying to accomplish? And I think when you start to break it down for them and then they can see with their own eyes what's going on with their children, that is kind of where the magic happens is because when you, when you bring the person into your fold and you say, look, we're trying to make um, a very comfortable environment for your child to have to test themselves, right? And um, parents sometimes don't see that just yet, which is that, do you want your child to be, or let's just say it doesn't have to be a child, just any student. Do you only want to be tested in real life? Because I think the beauty of what we do in jujitsu, because there is so much theory and application, like you can't learn jujitsu unless you're doing it. It's not a form. It's not a theory. It has to be done. So if you're not actually fighting, it's very difficult to know how you're going to respond in a real life scenario. So I think the beauty that occurs with jujitsu is that you're not only learning it, but then you're actively fighting and you have a legitimate safe place to fight and learn your own boundaries, learn about self-awareness and trust, not just in yourself, but in other people. And by doing that, it empowers you to then take on bigger challenges and challenges that you can't control. And I think that's what parents start to see when they're observing is that, oh, okay, my kid's enjoying this. They're having fun and they're learning that they are in control of this, that it's not about what everybody else is doing. And so I, I think that is what is difficult to see to the naked eye, right? Because people just see the impact of fighting and they don't really see the practice of fighting and how much that builds you from the inside out. Awesome. Well, let's uh, transition to a subject that uh, you're known for, that you know a lot about, and that's uh, girls in jujitsu. Um, from my perspective, uh, li living in North America and having been doing jujitsu for seven or eight years, I can't think of another female that that has done more positive things for the sport. There's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of great athletes that have done a lot to uh, bring some eyes on the sport, but you have offered a lot of substance. So I want to get some advice for some girls, maybe just getting into jujitsu. And let's start with how to pick the right gym. Mm. Uh, for, so, so from a culture standpoint, if a, if a lady's going in to try out a gym, are there some things, maybe some red flags you might see in the first uh, training session or two that uh, you would advise her maybe to keep looking? Or there's some things they should look for. If you see this in a gym, then it's a good thing. Man, John, you're asking some loaded questions, my friend. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, gosh, there's a lot to say about this, especially, uh, you know, you can't kind of escape the politics of the time. But um, I'm in the middle of actually writing a pretty heavy article about this, just uh, about the growth of, of the women's um, demographic, if you will, in the sport. And, you know, when I started jujitsu so many years, almost two decades ago, um, 
there was nothing, you know, like if, if you were doing jujitsu, it was because you really loved fighting and you were willing to tolerate the conditions around you. And I have to say that we are getting to a point finally, not everywhere, but in a lot of places where you, you don't have to just tolerate the training conditions anymore. Um, but that being said, I think men and women are very different creatures. And, um, when, when the balance of, of a relationship between men and women, um, is not carefully considered, uh, I think you have, uh, recipes for disaster happening all over the place. What should a woman look for? I mean, what does a woman want? You know, what does anybody want? Male or female, you know, what, when you go into a school, what are you looking for? And I, I express to a lot of people that we are in the business of helping you become comfortable with being uncomfortable. So whether you're a male or a female, I think that's what we try to do. Um, but everybody comes to it with different needs. Some people start because they want camaraderie. Other people start because they really want to learn how to fight and they've watched it for years. Um, so depending on what your needs are, I think you look at what kind of communities are established around you because every gym will, will bring its own character and no gym is going to be the perfect fit for everybody. So if you want a lot of camaraderie and it's important for you to feel inclusive, included, uh, maybe you're looking for as a female, maybe you're looking for a gym with either a woman's program or a female figurehead at, at the very least. Um, because some women really do need the extra support of other females. Now my school is a little bit unusual because I don't have a woman's only program because I'm co-head instructor and co-owner. And so I, I, the way I think about it is if I'm leading the school and I own the school, then doesn't that give enough reason for anyone to think as a woman, there is room for me here, you know, because the 50% of the ownership is a female. And so we don't have women's only classes. And you'll find that I would say on any given night, 20 to 40% of the mats are filled with females. So like in a, when we have classes of, you know, 30, 35 people, you can see nine, nine or 10 women on the mats training, not only with each other, but with other men. Uh, because that is the type of culture I've tried to have in my school. Now, for some women, that's great. Other women might not like that. It might make them uncomfortable or maybe even just to start. Sometimes women prefer to have a, a female only type group. So as a female, I think if you want to fight, you really have to ask yourself, well, why do I want to fight? And let those reasons guide you in terms of what to watch out for. This is, this is a really difficult question because you don't know my crazy and I don't know your crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I got you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I think that, um, I think that, you know, I, I just, I said this recently on a, on a Facebook post, somebody had talked about why jujitsu teaching the, the ways, the ways in which we, we teach jujitsu in a lot of gyms seem to be so antiquated and, and wrong. And the, it was in relation to a Joe Rogan, Ben Askren podcast where Ben Askren said, you know, in wrestling, you're training different positions all the time. You're changing the drills up. You're doing situational things because in jujitsu, you just learn a move and then you just go do it. And he goes, it's just, there's, there's too much variability. And, uh, and when I think about that relative to, uh, 
women in the sport and what they're looking for. Like when you, when you show up at a gym and you don't know what you don't know, you don't know if the people that you are going to get involved with are great people. And you also don't know if the people that you are getting involved with are just athletes, uh, whether they're good teachers, whether they're good business owners. And one of the problems is that we in jujitsu, for some reason, we tend to feel that all three of those things are one, one role. And so when you meet your teacher or you meet your, your guide, you go, you are going to be an excellent teacher, an excellent uh, role model, an excellent training partner, and an excellent business owner. The reality is that's a very difficult combination to find. And so when you walk into a school and you meet your teacher or the person who's supposed to be your teacher, you believe these things most of the time, but you really don't know if that blue belt female uh, was just asked to teach the women's class because the head instructor of the school who's male has no idea what to do with women and asked her to do something. And so now she's doing something, but she actually has no idea what she's doing. She just got put into that role because she's a woman. <laughs> so I think when you go into different spaces, if you don't have a lot of self-awareness of what you think is um, balanced, what you think is reasonable, what you think is acceptable, not tolerable, it's very hard for you to know what you're getting involved in, you know? And so in terms of what to watch out for, I think you, you just have to think about some of your spidey sense. Um, if you have the, if I take it, if you're listening to this podcast or if somebody had given it to you, you're being given some awareness of what's going on in the jujitsu world. There's plenty of blog posts and articles written about things to look out for in gyms, positive and negative things. And, um, I would, you know, one of the things that I would say just off bat is if you go into a school and there's no space for you, period, meaning there's no locker room or, or space for women to change. Um, if there's just no respect being given to women at all, um, that's definitely something to be alarmed about because it, it, you don't, again, this goes back to me saying you don't have to train like this anymore that maybe 20 years ago, that was the case, but so many of us have had to endure those types of training conditions to now make space. You know, we've been around long enough that most schools will have at least, even if it's a closet, it's some designated space to say as a female, there's space for you here. I think that's a major trigger. Um, if, if whether or not you're even welcome and thought of, and, uh, you know, the other thing is just very blatant signs. If there is a sort of a, a machismo sexist culture, if the instructors or any of the men start looking you up and down or trying to hit on you when you first come in, I, I think that's really unacceptable, but there's a lot of gray area in figuring out what the right school is for you. And so the biggest piece of advice I could give anybody is make sure that the school you're going to allow, like gives you, you know, a couple classes or a week, or if you have the option to sign up for a couple weeks or a month, as opposed to signing up for two or three years, um, make sure that it's the right fit for you and that you feel comfortable there. Because when people start jujitsu, they don't always understand how, how much of a part of your life this could be. And it's not just like a gym membership where you kind of pop in, work out and leave. For most people, their gyms become like a second home. And it's, it's a tragic thing when there's, um, any sort of rift in that, right? So when you, when you go in, I, I think it's really, really important to, to feel like you're, you're in a place where 
you can kind of uh, let your hair down, if you will, and uh, that that you think you can learn something from and that you're going to be surrounded by good people. Um, because if your culture, if the culture in the gym is messy, um, it, it can actually ruin your life. You know, I've seen it ruin people's lives. It almost ruined mine. So, uh, yeah, so that's what I would say. Yep. Uh, yeah. They're having a, a space for you and, and, uh, welcoming you, welcoming you with respect. Those are two great observations. If you don't find those ladies, I keep looking, um, how about picking training partners? That can be a little dicey too, uh, m- mostly from a, a safety and a con- competitive aspect. Any advice yeah. for girls on that uh, line? Yeah, so I think um, I think with picking training partners, there's kind of two things you have to consider. One, uh, there are biological forces at work that you cannot escape. <laughs> so. So as, a, as if you are born as a female uh, and you are fighting a male and you're the same weight, the man will just generally be stronger. It's just how they're born. Um, those, those kinds of factors should definitely be weighed in, um, in addition to belt rank uh, and also age, right? So the, the longer I've trained jujitsu, the more and the more access and the more bodies there are training, the more I've leaned towards like, you don't, even though jujitsu is sort of built for the smaller, weaker person being able to defend themselves against a larger, stronger opponent. And even though I have a whole DVD series on that, um, do you, should you train like that every day? No, I don't think you should. It's a lot of wear and tear on your body. Do you train with the idea that these techniques can work and can be tested against bigger, stronger people every once in a while? 100%. So, you know, when I'm training now as a 38 year old woman with two children and having competed for 10, 12 years of my life, maybe longer, if you throw some other things in there, um, I don't want to train on a regular basis with people that are considerably larger than me. When I say considerably larger, I would say I'm about 150, 155 pounds right now. If somebody's more than 165, I have, I, I, I automatically start to consider other factors. And so some of those factors would be belt level and experience level, um, and age, you know? And so we can hurt ourselves much more quickly if we don't respect where everybody's coming from. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, when I was training for a master's worlds last year in August, I had been training super hard. I put a lot of work into all aspects of my training because I hadn't competed in six years. And one of my, I, as I was ramping up two weeks before the fight, um, I was doing takedowns. We were sort of doing like a shark tank drill and I just looked at the bodies in the room and I picked people that were close to my size. But I was so amped up, I didn't consider experience level and youth. So I ended up training with a young man who was, I think, 19 um, and like 10, 15 pounds bigger than me. And we were doing uh, takedowns and he was a wrestler. And foolish for me that I should I, I should have been smarter about that. But I trained with him. He did nothing wrong. He went in for a double, low low double leg. And when he went in for the low double leg, my ankle, one of my ankles just got stuck on the mat and I ended up blowing my ankle out on both ends. Now that was a stupid mistake on my part, 
because he didn't do anything wrong. I was just like, fuck, I shouldn't have been training with that guy because the explosiveness that he's going to come at me with is a lot. He's nearly 20 years my junior. Even though I'm a lot more experienced, I should have been more careful. I should have picked somebody that would know how to train with me better. Um, coming up, I trained with huge guys all the time because I had no choice. That was It was like I had to train with whoever was there. Otherwise, I wasn't training. But we don't have to do that anymore, right? Like we should train smarter, not harder, because we have more now than we've ever had. And in 10 years, we'll have even more than what we're talking about now. So as females, I would I would really encourage you to not um, overshoot and always train with people that are going to give you super hard roles. Like super hard roles are great, but that shouldn't be every role every day of the week. Um, and also, I, when I go around and I teach women's seminars or camps, one of the most common complaints I have from women well into blue belt or purple belt. So we're not talking like you're a white belt and you're in your first year, but you're talking... I've been training for three years, four years, five years, some women who have never been able to get off the bottom, like their passing is atrocious because they've never been able to pass. And I'm like, you got to take control of your own training. And they're like, well, I always get put on the bottom. And I said, so here's an idea. The next time you go back and you train with your 195 pound blue belt training partner, who's a nice guy, just say, Hey, I'm really working on my passing. Do you think that for this round, I could start on top and you could work on your guard work because I would love to practice some of my top game. And it's a, it's like a lot of people go, Oh, I never thought about doing that before. And I'm like, yeah, you can't round your game out going back to that podcast. I was talking about with Ben Askren where there's too many variables and in jujitsu, depending on how you're taught and the structure of the classes you're in, if you never go through positional training and the instructor just ever lets everybody slap hands and roll, people will naturally only do the things that they like to do and that they're good at doing. And so the big people will always win because you'll just get thrown on the bottom. So I think, um, as a woman, you really do have to sort of advocate for yourself a little bit. And it doesn't mean that you're rude. And it doesn't mean that you say, I don't want to train with you. You're, you're useless to me. It just means like be smarter about who you're rolling with so that you can get benefit. You can get the benefit of every class. And then once a week, or if you're competing and it's more important, then you throw yourself out there and you periodically train with people that are stronger or bigger or more challenging, whatever the issue may be. But I don't think that's a smart way to train all the time. Yeah, I, I would agree. And for our listeners out there, if you haven't asked a training partner, whether you're male or female, if you ha haven't asked a training partner to do some positional training or start from a specific position, uh, you'd be surprised. It works every time. Uh, Due to age yeah. and age and injury, I've asked a lot of people, hey, can we start in your guard, my guard? I've never had a person decline. I've never had a coach come up and tell me, oh, that's not what we're doing right now. Um, yeah, the jiu-jitsu community is great about that. Uh, Emily, let's move on to uh, what what should a woman wear? When they're coming in for their first class, they don't know anything about jiu-jitsu. They were told to go buy a gi and show up at class. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Or what do you tell women that come to your school and they want to train and they say, what should I wear to the class? What do you tell them? So I always try to lead by example. Um, but, uh, if, if it's a new woman and, and we have to, uh, sort of lay the groundwork or, or give them instruction, I usually tell them to stay fully covered. Um, so underneath their gi, if it's a gi class, you would want to wear proper, like either full, uh, brief or spandex or boycott underwear. 
um, not thongs. Okay. This, this happens a lot. Um, a, a full sports bra with a rash guard or some sort of uh, shirt on top, like a, maybe like an under armor, uh, wicking shirt, whatever it may be. Um, and you know, pull the hair back, wash the makeup off your face, take any jewelry off and, you know, out of your body. Now, uh, also nails should be trimmed. I fully manicured nails that could potentially scratch somebody or worse, uh, hurt yourself because your nails will be bent backwards or twisted. Um, that's never a, a great situation. And, uh, I'm pretty firm on that. And especially when it comes to articles of clothing, I think women don't need to be sexless on the mats, but it is a point of distraction. I mean, what we do when it's being observed by, by the naked eye, someone who doesn't train jujitsu, it looks very sexual. Uh, that's plain and simple. When someone starts jujitsu and they don't know what to expect, they go, you want me to get between that guy's legs? That's weird. Or you ask somebody to sit in between a woman's legs and they go, I'm supposed to wrap my legs around this guy's waist. That's really uncomfortable. It brings about very sexual positions, plain and simple. That's what happens. Have men acted inappropriately before around me while training? 100%. Do men want to behave that way? Or do they have instincts that they might not always speak about when they see you? 100%. And I'm not saying this about everybody, but it is there. And when you have men and women training together, the focus should never be on how you appear and if you're cute and appealing to the opposite sex. You shouldn't make yourself that way. Now, things happen on their own. But when a woman comes in wearing, uh, you know, a very skimpy, you know, sports bra and they have whale tail thong hanging off their butt crack, you're not training in my class like that because one, people are going to be looking at a lot of other things versus your jujitsu. Two, you are creating now a problem for the rest of the females in the class who might be there to train seriously, right? I've had situations where men choose to look at me or other women differently because they see other women coming in dressed a different way. And I think for a lot of women who have trained jujitsu a long time and who've worked hard to make space for other women, it's, um, it's, it's very challenging when you deal with a woman who comes in and sort of displays what I would call attention seeking behavior by throwing their assets around as a female. And the, the, uh, the focus then becomes for a lot of men, even if they're proper, super good dudes, they can't get that sight out of their minds. I saw boobs under a gi. I saw a butt crack in the, like, you know, when, when she leaned over and it, it kind of shifts the dynamic and, and the energy of how men and women train together. And so going back to that sexless comment, it's not like you should walk in, in like a burlap sack, but I always try very hard to keep my presence on the mat as a jujitsu student, as a jujitsu fighter, as a jujitsu teacher, and to dress respectably and to cover up. Another factor that people also don't consider is how uncomfortable it can make men or their spouses or their significant others. I've had situations in schools where, uh, you know, women are not allowed to train with that guy, or that guy is not allowed to train with her, because the wife or the girlfriend doesn't like it. And so 
in order to sort of sidestep all of that sort of drama, I just ask that everybody always cover themselves up. Now, there are some women who at some point when they gain some competitive notoriety, they want to go take a fancy photo shoot and they take photos of themselves in bikinis underneath their geese and belts and all that kind of business. I too am still not a fan of that because it presents imagery to men where we've now sexualized the female in the jujitsu uniform. So it just implicates the same thing. If you want to go do a bikini photo shoot, go do it. Look awesome. Go do some bodybuilding. Look awesome. But don't throw a belt and don't throw a gi on top of it because then men start thinking sex gis jujitsu. <laughs> so that's what I would say to that. <laughs> Uh, just to be clear, though, you're you're not saying that because uh, some bad things have happened in training environments. We're not saying in any way that uh, a woman bears responsibility for being assaulted because she uh, didn't make the right choice in clothing that day. No, just no, talk. I just mean, talking more about a good environment on the mats. Yeah, I'm talking more strictly about respecting yourself as a female, respecting the culture of the school. And that we are respecting the fact that, yeah, we cannot deny the fact that we are doing a, like, it's a contact sport. People get very up close and personal. And we don't want people thinking that, right? We don't want people going in that direction. And so in order to keep it respectable as much as possible, and again, I'm not denying that attraction and all that kind of stuff happens, but we can keep it professional and we can keep it as, as, clean as we can and as females respect our own bodies and be celebrated for the awesome jujitsu that we do not be celebrated because we have really nice assets you know and um and that you know it just it goes into any major league sport really i'm not saying that any woman is asking for it i'm just saying that a lot of times women who are are quite talented in um in their skill levels sometimes they stop being celebrated for what they're actually good at doing because it's more convenient to look at how cute they are doing it. Right. And I wish that that wasn't always the case because I think there's a lot of women that have worked very hard to establish the level of women's jujitsu and how far it's come and created space for more women to enter that uh, arena. And I just think it's a shame to take the focus away from their skill level and bring it on to their boobs, you know? Yeah. Yep. Well said. So, <laughs> I, I appreciate your perspective on that and sharing it with our listeners. I want to ask you one more question about women specifically before we move on and talk a little bit about competition. Um, one of the things that I've seen in the years I've been doing jujitsu is when people miss two or three months, that's almost uh, the end of their jujitsu. I mean, it just, it's real consistent. They might try and make a comeback, but they're not where they used to be and they end up quitting. And, um, Starting a family must be difficult for women on the mats. Do you have any advice for uh, jujitsu practitioners that are starting a family or they're juggling two or three small kids at home? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I first of all, I got to say I, I like the fact that you are. A lot of your questions are directed at um, being very inclusive of of women who sometimes have, you know, biological setbacks. In this case. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I agree with you that sometimes when you, you take a prolonged injury or like a, a prolonged time period out of jujitsu, it can set you back and sometimes make you quit. I find that that's more often the case in the, like 
white belt, blue belt level, maybe because you haven't quite gotten as far into it. And uh, I see that happening less sort of as a purple brown or a black belt at that. I I always call it like, if you make it to purple belt, you're going to make it to black belt, but not everybody makes it to purple belt. (laughs) And um, with women and, and child rearing. Yeah. Listen, we, if we want to have children, we should feel that we can, and that we're not going to lose out on anything. And, um, when I decided to have children, I pushed back on myself a few years initially because I, I felt like I wasn't done. Like I felt like I needed, I wanted to compete a little bit more because I knew that when I'd have children, the priority wasn't going to be me and my training, uh, anymore. Now it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but it means it will be interrupted for a little period of time. So I think if you're a female thinking about having children, uh, timing should be important. I like a consideration. Um, do I need to have a child right now or, uh, can I have one in a year or two? Does it make a big difference for some people? The answer will be yes. For some people it'll be no. I just feel like having a kid. I think women should understand that, uh, when you decide to have a child, you are bringing a dependent into the world who needs you more and who you need to be there for more than any other thing or person that's ever existed. And so when that child is crying or is really sick and you want to go to class, it's not about you going to class. You have to be there for that kid. So at what point do you feel that you could be at least satisfied with giving that priority up for a couple of years until the child is a bit older and maybe your training schedule changes or you have a babysitter that can come help you out. So um, how deep is your need to have a child versus your deep your desire to be selfish and learn jujitsu because you love it. And when I say selfish, I, I mean nothing negative by that word. I just mean that you deserve, you were, you were born, you were raised, you exist because you have a gift and you have uh, a perspective and a personality and a character that you are here to share with the world. So if your desire as a person is to understand and live the sport deeply, uh, are you ready to trade that off for a couple years or for some period of time uh, to have a child and make that child your everything? I think that's a huge balance consideration that people should make because I did not want to have children and be resentful that they cut into my competitive career or they cut into my life somehow. And so I tried to make a very conscious decision uh, to wait until I felt like, you know what? I don't regret anything I've done. I don't feel like I've missed out. If I never compete again after today, I'll be okay with it was how I spoke to myself. So, um, considering what, what your priorities are is super important. Um, when you are pregnant or you're going through that process, I, I always tell people, man, the worst, when people talk to me about injury, I'm like, you know, <laughs> the injury of, of pregnancy is that you just get bigger and fatter and slower. And <laughs> like, it's, it's like going in reverse on, on, on speed because it happened so quickly. And so what I did to prepare for pregnancy was I started weightlifting and working out a lot, uh, while I was training so that I was at my P I was at a very healthy point in life when I had, when I got pregnant with my children and well, with my first one, especially I'd come off of competition. I was doing rehab. I was working out. So I was in great physical shape and I always think healthy mind, healthy body. You know, if the mom is happy upstairs, everything else is working downstairs. And, um, I got pregnant on my first try 
And while I got bigger and, you know, the baby got bigger and I felt slower, I transitioned from doing all of, a lot of my heavier cardio workouts from jujitsu related things to more weightlifting related things. So women who are training jujitsu love to feel their bodies and live in their bodies. And I, I sure, I'm sure that they enjoy the physical expression of training. Um, and it can be very frustrating when you can't do that anymore. And the biggest setback in jujitsu is that you need to have another body to do this with you. So I trained up until about four or five months with my first child. And then I switched over to maybe like drilling or just moving through, getting through the motions and teaching until I was eight months. I didn't carry very big, but I made my training partners uncomfortable because they didn't want to accidentally fall on me. Right. I know I never trained with people that could do that, but they were like, I don't want to be responsible if I accidentally slip and fall. I was like, I understand. So at about four or five months, I started transitioning and doing more workouts that I could control lifting weights and such and cardio so that I could still feel like I was living in my body, but then I wasn't putting all of the weight on, uh, just my jujitsu training. So finding different ways to keep your body active, I think is also another really important thing for women and to just also know that you're not being sidelined, right? Like you, you can still learn jujitsu. You can watch videos. You can go to class. You can still drill. You, you know, I think it's really important for women who are physical to stay physical. Um, and you know, my doctor had said, you know, your limits, you know, your body, I'm not worried about you. Um, working, you just can't push yourself over the max, I need you to stay 20% under your max. And I was like, Okay, fine. And I would probably say for most women in jujitsu, same thing, you know, your body, you know, what max is. So stay active, keep yourself happy. And it's not tragic. I was back on the mats three weeks after my first kid very slowly, I wasn't doing any major training, but just like being back on the mats and trying to do a few moves not, not doing any live training for a few more weeks until my ligaments kind of resettled, but it's not the end of the world. It can totally happen. Yeah, you don't have to give it up. In fact, I would think that, uh, looking at it as an injury, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that it's a, it's sort of a joke, but looking at it as an injury then makes it seem not as different. Yeah. Uh, you can, yeah. you can look around the room where you're training and say, well, uh, Jeff over there, he missed three months because he blew his knee out. And, yeah. you know, so I think that's an awesome way to look at it. I'd never thought about it before. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I apologize if I offended any soon to be mothers or mothers or fathers with that comment, but really like, cause pregnancy is not an injury, but for the sake of like framing it in your mind, when I look back at when I was pregnant, it was like an injury. It was two blips on the radar screen where I wasn't on the mats a lot, but I got over it and I got healthy and I got back again, you know, and it's just, it's just not the end of your world. And I think that some mothers, soon to be mothers, expectant mothers, they, they feel like, oh my God, if I have a child, I have to give all this up. And I'm like, no, you don't. Cause I didn't. And I, and I have two and, and I'm going to keep going and I'm going to find different ways to make sure that this is still a huge part of my life. And I think as females, we need to set that example for each other. You know, like so much of my career has been about, oh, nobody's done this before, or it hasn't been documented or nobody knows about it. Well, why don't I try? And whatever I find out, let it be a grand experiment and I'll share my results, <laughs> you know? And if my results are okay, then maybe that'll give other people reason to think that they can do it too. And then in five or 10 years, it won't be an issue anymore. Nope. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, and I would add um, to the dads out there, if you do jujitsu, your wife, your girlfriend does jujitsu as well, and you have a family, 
man, uh, support your wife. Uh, yes. Once that baby's there and uh, doesn't need mom around 24-7, stay home with the kid and let mom go train. Um, yeah, that'll make it a little easier. Yeah. And I, I, you know what, and that's a great point. And I'm glad you raised that because my husband is so supportive of, of what I do. And, uh, you know, I get a babysitter two nights a week so that we can both train together. But if I'm training for like, when I said that I wanted to do masters last year, he said, whatever you need me to do, if you need me to stay home with the kids, I'll do it so that you can train it. I can't tell you how nice it is to be, um, in a relationship with somebody who values, my life and my contributions to what I love to do and will make the space for me to do that. Same way if he said that, you know, I want to, I want to compete and do X or whatever, I would want to do the same thing for him, but it can work. And, you know, and you see more people doing that, like, uh, more and more people are finding ways to balance families and jujitsu. And then once they, once the children get to a certain age, everybody can go together, you know? So that's the other beautiful thing. Yep. Awesome. Emily, let's talk about uh, competition for a minute. Uh, my first question would be, how much value do you put on competition for your students? Uh, how much do you encourage it? Uh, what should they be looking to get out of competition early on in their jiu-jitsu careers? So I think that competition is beneficial for everyone, but it's not something that every everyone can or will or should do. Um, people who know me well, I think, or maybe they don't need to know me that well, but they've just observed that <laughs> I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty confrontational person. Um, I'm sure certain life experiences have, have made me this way, but I can't think of a more confrontational experience than competing. Uh, the difference is that in competition, the person you're confronting is you. Um, it's not a, it's, even though it's a fight against another person, it's really about you. And so what I find is that, uh, competing and putting yourself out there has value alone. Even if you horrendously lose, you know, every single match, your first tournament, because it's, I think it says something about you willing to go out and see yourself and, and, and to be accountable for yourself because, when you go and you compete, it's not, I think contrary to what some people may feel, it's not like you go out on the mats and everything that you know and everything that you don't know just gets exposed. It's actually a lot more complicated than that because when you go out and you compete, it's about how much of yourself are you willing to recognize and let go so that you can do all the things that you know. You know, like it's very hard for pe people will go out and they'll try to compete and they'll freeze because they can't deal with this version of the self and they, they can't access all the great things that they know. And I think that competition is such a valuable process in getting to know thyself better and to get deeper and to be more familiar and to let that boundary go when it needs to go so that you can instinctively do what you need to do. Uh, so for any student that wants to get out there, I applaud them and I support them 100% because it's probably the scariest thing you're ever going to do because you're putting yourself on the line. But what happens as a result of it is I often think that people feel really refreshed, sometimes extremely grounded. Um, sometimes it's shocking, you know, and, and they never compete again or they're not sure if they can. Because you realize, you learn things about yourself so deeply in those five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it may be. 
um, that maybe you've never been able to experience before. And uh, I think successful competitors are those who really enjoy like wanting to dive deeper and learn themselves, learn about themselves on uh, other, other levels and other layers. And they go back and they hit it again and again and again until they are sort of living authentically in the moment all the time. It's a very hard thing for us to do. And I think for most of us uh, who enjoy jujitsu and maybe can't articulate what it is that we enjoy about it, in those five minutes that you're fighting somebody, you are the most alive and you are the most real you're ever going to be because everything that you do is a true expression of the self in that moment. We don't usually get to do that in life. We live, a lot of us live some version of the self and we, we're not actually being authentic. We're not actually being real. We're functioning within some sort of context and, and we think we're being real, but fighting makes everything real. And so when people go and compete, I, I really have a lot of respect for that because it's, it's, it's not a hard thing to do. And if you, if you don't compete, if you can't compete, if you don't, you know, you're working yourself up to it, that's great. That's something that you're, um, that's something that you're playing with. It's, it's a boundary that you're looking to, uh, step over or explore. And I don't think any, any less of you. Um, but, but if you get there, uh, go for it. You know, like I, I think it, it unleashes so much about the deeper self and, uh, and, I would also say that you shouldn't compete for anyone else's approval. You should really just go in and, and do it for yourself. And I know that's easier said than done. And it, God knows it took me, uh, I don't know, like 17, 18 years to figure that out. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's it, when you get there, it, it gives you such a, a deep appreciation for who you are and what you do and what you know. And um, I, I truly mean it when masters last year was the time that I, I felt the most myself and I felt most deeply connected, um, to everything that I am. And ever since then I've been on a real high, like I've kind of been in a state of flow since then in all aspects of my life, because I I've worked at it for, for almost two decades and I finally got there. So, uh, anyone who wants to start that journey today, I say, go do it for sure. So real quick, was the Masters last year, was that a, a one-off or have you sort of started the next chapter of your competitive career? I think I've just, I, I think I've kind of opened the gate back up, okay. you know, um, I, a, a lot of people also don't know, I maintain a professional career outside of jujitsu and that career is incredibly exciting and, uh, is demanding at times. So I, I do dedicate a lot of my life towards that career because, um, I, I love that work equally, if not in some ways, maybe I, well, actually, no, that career and, and what I do in jujitsu is very intertwined in some ways, but I, I love what I do. And so if that, if my work schedule takes precedent over training, then it's not convenient for me to say, Hey guys, I'm, I'm going to be back competing full time, or I'm going to hit every tournament this year. I can't, I can't really do that. I have, um, I certainly have work conditions that allow it, uh, allow me to be able to train more than the average person, I think. But, uh, concentration wise, like if I'm going to do it, I, I want to really put my, my head and my heart behind it. So, uh, I, I am contemplating jumping back into competition this year for a couple of things. Um, to be honest, you know, when I stopped competing in 2012, people were like, did you retire? And I was like, I don't like to say I retired cause it's a little bit absolute, but I think I'm kind of done with it right now. And I was, I was, I was really burnt out. I don't think I even knew how burnt out I was. 
And, um, after I had the kids and just kind of focused on some other things and also in the, in the last five, six years, um, spent a lot of time rehabilitating my own brain, um, like sports psychology wise, learning how to think about myself and to think about my, uh, uh, my inner athlete differently. I think that was really important. And so what inspired me to compete last year was that I, I have a school full of awesome students and some of those awesome students are people who are far more accomplished than I am. And, uh, they, you know, one person in particular, she's, you know, in her, I think she qualifies as a master six. She's in her late fifties, I believe has five children that are fully grown. One, the last one's about ready to graduate high school. She's retired from her career and she's a brown belt and she goes out and she kills it all the time on the mat. She goes and seeks out competition and she loves it. And I look at this woman and I'm just like, man, how can I have an excuse to not compete if I, if I enjoy it for myself when she's out there doing it, you know? And I was like, because I'm busy with two kids. Well, I'm, I want to make some time for myself. And so with my youngest being a little bit older, it was easier for me to, you know, step away a bit. And I decided last year, you know what, I'll, I'll try master seniors. And I got to say, I'm, I'm so happy that I did one. It taught me a lot about myself and how much I'd grown as an athlete and as a person. Um, but two, it's really, it's, I encourage those of us who competed before there were master's divisions, um, to get back in there because it's, it's incredible how much the sport has grown. You know, in my time, I just had to fight anybody that showed up female, didn't matter what belt, didn't matter what, what weight bracket. It was just, if you showed up, you might be one of three. So we all just had to fight each other to be at a place now where there's so many different, um, uh, divisions. It's made the sport so much more inclusive of everybody. Now we still don't always have all the numbers that we want, but to know that there's actually a, an appropriate place for me now is kind of a weird thing. I'm, I'm like, what? I don't have to compete with the adults. I don't have to compete against people 20 years younger than me. Um, and it's, it's kind of nice to be able to go and do that. And I, I like the masters, the vibe at that tournament is very, um, it's just loving people are just, I think, grateful that they can be there and do what they love, you know? So yeah, it was, it was a good time. Awesome. Yeah. The, uh, the, the age brackets, the weight divisions, they really do make it possible to compete till, well, I mean, we see guys doing it in their sixties, guys and gals doing it in their sixties. So that's a beautiful thing. I wanted to, I ask you one follow up on you were talking about uh, brain rehabilitation. Um, is this something you felt like you needed to do all along, or, or is this something kind of um, re-identifying now that you've got kids? You're kind of midlife. Is it is it more uh, just looking at things differently, or something you've always wanted to do? Uh, so I I think I said earlier you don't know what you don't know, and when I started jujitsu. Um, in the time that I started jujitsu, there was not a lot going on. And, um, I don't think those of us that were doing it even knew how to take it seriously because we were just doing it. That's all you could do. Um, we had no IBJJF tournaments here. We, we barely had any tournaments <laughs> to fight in period. And, um, I, I think the first third of my career was spent doing what I do well. So I had a specific system of take the person down, pass the guard, finish from the top. Like, that's just what I did. And I just was good at it. And I would just keep doing it. And so because I keep doing it and it's reinforced as good, I kept getting better at it and I kept winning. 
And uh, when I became a brown belt and I was fighting at a brown belt level, and now we have IBJJF in the United States, it's like 2007, right? Uh, that's when I started to feel like, man, I'm now meeting people who are flying from Brazil or other parts of the world who are equally, if not better than me, good, you know? And so when I started feeling the technical level rise and I started feeling a little bit of heat in the kitchen, uh, I started feeling insecurities and I hadn't lost a lot up until Brown Belt. Um, I fought whoever was there, but I, I always did well because I knew what I did well. And when I started being challenged in that space, it, it didn't feel good. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel any, for anyone who's ever felt insecure, um, it's, it's not a good feeling to feel like you're incompetent or that you don't know or that you struggled. And if you don't address it or if you don't have people around you that can help you address it, right, it, it gets to be a bigger and bigger problem. And then you start finding that you're competing more to prove something to yourself than you are about loving the game. And that was the big shift for me was that I used to just go and compete because I loved it. Now, I probably loved it because I kept winning. But when I stopped winning all the time, I was like, oh, like, what am I doing? And then I kept regretting my performance. I'd be like, oh, I, I didn't. I wish I could have competed like I did back then. How come I didn't do that? What's wrong with me? And I started really getting on myself. It didn't help that during that time, I also was associated with a team that was not putting me in a great mental space and um, almost destroyed me. I mean, I almost quit jujitsu as a brown belt because of the oppressive nature of the people I had surrounded myself with. And when I went to Marcelo's in 2010, that was like me saying to myself, I think I still have something and I want to see if it's alive. So let me try. And so I dedicated myself to training for, uh, you know, two, three years. And I managed to come back and win some tournaments here and there uh, until I was just kind of done, you know. But when that had happened, I, I quit training and I, I wasn't, well, I shouldn't say I quit training. When I sort of curtailed competition, I, I was a bit conflicted. On one hand, I felt like I'd done all that I could do with the cards that I was dealt and then on the other hand, I just kept thinking, but if I wasn't, if I didn't feel so bad about myself, then maybe I would have done better. So the next five years, uh, so I, I work very closely with, uh, this gentleman named, named Josh Wadeskin, who is uh, a partner at Marcelo Garcia school and who's best known for being, uh, the, the subject of the book and the movie searching for Bobby Fisher. So, uh, he hates this term, but people call him like the, the chess prodigy. And he wrote um, an excellent book called The Art of Learning, which I highly recommend to anybody who struggles with this, um, with, with performance. And, and it's about principles in learning and how we, how we should approach learning in the mind and what we should adhere ourselves to versus sort of these superficial notions of what good is and, and, and what it is to win and excel. And uh, working with him and familiarizing myself with his book so much um, over five years, you know, and, and we work in the field of peak performance. So we get to work with high level performers in, uh, business and financial industries. And, uh, we work with, with people on this level of trying to deconstruct their, their peak method. Like what is it that makes them amazing and helping them get there and stay there and tap into it. And so doing this from the outside and not focusing on myself 
I think taught me a lot about observation and being rational with the self and how to build myself back up from the inside. And when I decided to compete, I asked him before I made the announcement, I said, what would you think if I decided to go back and do masters? And he's like, I think that would be incredible. And so I think I really took a lot of the principles from his book and I, and I internalized them for myself. And in addition to that, uh, I, I knew that I was going back to almost fight like the biggest fight of my life, which is myself. You know, it, it, it wasn't a matter. It's, it's funny to me because externally, I think a lot of people have thoughts about who I am or what I've accomplished or what I've done. But internally, I'm just the same as everybody else. And I think, God, I haven't done anything. And how do I get better? And man, I suck. And I, I, I have the same conversations in my head that everybody else does. And I needed to prove to myself that I was worthy of being back out there. And, um, and I did it. You know, I, I can honestly say for once in my life, I'm like, I'm really proud of the work that I put in and the fact that I went out there and I was able to fight without any, uh, obstacles, mental obstacles in my way. And it felt really, really good. And so now if I were to go compete again, um, I would, I would like to continue working along those lines of, not talking down to myself and building myself up and being able to go and compete without all these mental demons. And if I did it last year, I I'm, I'm going to knock on wood. I'm certain I can do it again. <laughs> so, yeah, man, that's awesome. I feel like the, uh, there's some buds buzzwords in our society, like transparency and vulnerability that get thrown around. But I feel like both of those have, been a big part of this podcast so far i really appreciate you sharing all this with us um okay so i'd like to close the podcast with talking a little bit about uh business every blue and purple belt has a dream of making a living in the industry and you've had a lot of experience with it uh, you've been a fighter done instructional materials uh done sales and promotions at gracie mag you're doing some writing of your own now you've taught multiple privates uh seminars camps you've been a paid instructor and now you're a school owner so that's a, a lot of stuff i guess I, i'm curious for my own uh purposes out of all those things what have you found the most fulfilling oh why you come up with these hard <laughs> questions yeah what, what did you enjoy most because that's a big list of things that you've done um and i'm sure some of it was a little more rewarding than others some of it was probably just a lot of work yeah you know, some of it is a lot of work. Um, all of it is a lot of work. I, I think that none of this, I, so I always, regardless of what people think of me today, right? Like a lot of people starting their jujitsu journey now or within the last five, 10 years, they have an idea of who I am and what, like what I represent and all this, all these things that I've done. But 20 years ago, Emily Kwok had no ambition to be a world champion or an instructional teacher or a school owner. Like I was just uh, a slightly out of shape person who was looking for something new to do. And I don't think anything that I do today in the way that I do it would be possible had I not just loved jujitsu and expressed myself as thoroughly as I could have uh, through competing and learning about myself being selfish for those first, you know, four or five years, um, and just throwing myself into training every single day and just loving every second of getting out there and testing myself, doing that, being that athlete, I suppose, is what brought me 
to where I am today because it, it helped me break down all the internal barriers, right? And it's kind of come full circle just to what I was saying right now about competing for masters is that I needed to do all of that in order to get to a place where I felt much more secure in who I am as a, as a, as a person, a whole person today. And, uh, it was being the athlete. It was investing in the self that helped make that possible. Um, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I don't think teachers and business owners and athletes are the same thing. They aren't. Um, I do have an education. I went to art school. I learned how to look at problems and deconstruct them and figure them out. And you could say that that might've been what I was born able to do. Like my, one of the things that I'm good at doing is observing and problem solving It's something I love doing. And, uh, a combination of that, in addition to really investing in the self, um, is, is what's allowed me to have all of these different roles, explore them, and then have something hopefully intelligent to share with other people. Um, again, like the work that I do with Josh, so much of it is around this idea of understanding the self better and that you can't understand the self better if you're not physically living in your body, you know? And so like Josh has gone on from doing chess to push hands, Tai Chi to jujitsu, and now he's surfing. And so he's constantly changing the medium in which he learns to manage the self better. Jiu-jitsu happens to be my medium. And um, through having more awareness, and maybe it was by luck that I was able to meet a teacher like that, you know, like, that's something that I always seeked and strived for in my jiu-jitsu career was to find someone to teach me. And I don't mean just teach me technique, but I often maybe uh, wholeheartedly too much, put my teachers on pedestals and believe that they could teach me not only about jujitsu, but about life and how to be. And, um, that trust was more often than not betrayed by the people that I gave it to. But in Josh, uh, I not only found a true friend and a mentor, but like someone who has really taught me so much about life because of his own insights, you know, because of what he's found. And I think for anyone who's out there and has a dream, learn to know yourself really well all, all the good things and all the bad things and whatever you need to do to do that, you know, whether it's doing more competition or it's journaling or it's traveling, you know, I, I love, like, I love life. Like if people know me, like they know, I love being stimulated. I love traveling. I love knowing all the little nooks and crannies and edges. I love knowing things that are about me and not about me because when I have more context about the world, I think it teaches me more about how I should operate within it. And so from, being selfish and doing that for myself, I think it's kind of given me the key to express myself in any medium that I choose to go express myself now. And I think, you know, when you talk about, uh, you, you raise the word transparency and vulnerability. I think that that I would also add authenticity. Like these are things that I believe are, are so important to living a quality life, not just for the self, but for those that are around you. And I think if you migrate into the position of being some sort of a teacher or a leader, it's so important that you can share those lessons with the people around you. Because one thing that we are severely lacking, I, I think, in the world right now is this authenticity and vulnerability and transparency. Um, I don't think I don't think that's a, a true life if you don't have those things. So uh, for advice for people getting started in the industry, you said a couple of things that I think were really important. The first thing you said was that uh, you, you took it back to having a, a love for jujitsu 
first. And I like that, uh, I'd like to point out that there's a difference between a love for jujitsu and a love for the idea of being a jujitsu fighter and yeah. winning tournaments <laughs> and, and being a big shot. I mean, cause, cause that's, I see people come at it from that's what they want, but you really got to love to train. You got to love to be at the gym and, and be in that sweaty, hardworking environment. If that's not a part of who you are, then making a living in this industry is going to be difficult. I also heard you say that it's important to uh, surround yourself with the right people. And I heard you say that you really got to know who you are and you got to be in touch with that. And those are probably three great pieces of advice for somebody starting in this industry. Yeah. I mean, you could, I could argue that it could be any industry, you know, you could take any of those things and apply it to anything that you want to do. Um, and actually back to the first point where you'd raised uh, loving jujitsu, not just loving the idea of it. I think that this is something that sets people in my generation apart from what's happening today. Because we grew up in a, we started jujitsu in a time before social media, before the, you know, the internet was really a, a huge thing. And like it was oral tradition, you know, your reputation was served because people heard about you because they saw you, not because they recorded you and put you up on Instagram, not because you thought you were awesome and took pictures of yourself and threw it up on social media. Like that's the idea of what being a jujitsu fighter is or a celebrity in the jujitsu world, whatever it is, whatever you want to deem it, that never existed in my time. And so I, I could never be that person anyways, you know, and, and I think that again, it goes back to being authentic. You know, are you, the idea of being something is easy to throw out and dispel, but if, if you really love it, you're going to go do it. And then people will, People should be talking about what you do and what you stand for, not what you talk about and not what you think you're about, you know? And, um, I, I think that that is, uh, it's kind of plaguing our industry right now. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's kind of interesting because, uh, there are a lot of, in my time, and I, and I would still say this, it, it was very important for me and it still is to be respected by my peers. There's nothing more that I appreciate than, a teacher of mine or a, a somebody that I respect greatly in the sport, you know, enjoying what I do or, or telling me how much they appreciate what I do or that they're friends with me. That is gold to me. Um, but now I think we're in an age where people aren't looking for that respect from their elders or their peers, and they're just creating it for themselves. <laughs> and I think that that is uh, it's introducing like a very interesting dynamic into our culture because you have a lot of people who are just experts by who I don't know, but like they just made themselves experts. And, you know, um, there's a lot of brand recognition with sponsorships. Like, Hey, if you have 5,000 followers on Instagram, we'll give you some free merchandise. Well, okay. But like, is it, are those followers there because that person's really doing great things or are we just all applauding each other for looking cute all the time? You know? And so it's, the industry's changed a lot. And I, and I think that for people who are out there trying to make a way for themselves, I think it's not, I, I understand that we can't change the times that we're in, but I think it's very important that you are a product and that you do the things that you think you're about, not just say or take pictures or act, you know, just be those things. I think it's, it says so much more about you as, as an athlete and as a person. And I think you'll gain a lot more credible respect, uh, from people in the industry. Right on. Uh, before we close here, 
Do you have any projects that you're just starting or recently completed? Uh, anything going on at your school that you'd like to talk about before we get off the air? Um, so just a, a couple things. I, I'm starting to write a little bit more in, um, in the, in the jujitsu world. And, uh, I write on a variety of different topics. Um, everything from, you know, five point, 10 point tip lists. I, I just had a really popular article that went up on longevity and BJJ, um, to personal opinion articles. And if anyone has questions that they'd love to have explored or answered, I would love to take them on. So please find me on, um, you can, Instagram is Emily Kwok BJJ or Facebook. You can just look me up or email the school. I'd love to hear from you in terms of questions. And, and if you like the writing, awesome. I, I hope it helps you. Um, I also am, uh, I think with Val Worthington and Hannette Stack, we'll be doing some, it's 10 years that we've been running Groundswell Grappling Concepts. So we've been running camps for women and for co-ed um, uh, audiences all over the country for the last 10 years. And it's our 10-year anniversary. So I think we will most likely be running a couple events this year, uh, which we would love to meet old faces and new. Um, and uh, our camps are really focused on quality over quantity. So uh, we don't have, we don't have hundreds of people at our camps. We concentrate on a smaller group because we like to have, uh, deep relationships with the people that we start to meet. And a lot of the people that have been working with us over the years have come back time and time again and brought more people. And it's, it's a really unique, cohesive, um, tight, awesome group of people. Uh, so come be a part of that. And, um, I filmed a, a series of, uh, techniques with Jason Scully and Grappler's Guide last year. Um, he, uh, provides a great resource site with grapplers guide, always adding new videos, but the advantage for the user is that you don't have to pay every month. So it's a one-time fee. And I think if you use the code, uh, Emily Kwok, all in capital letters, you can get 30% off the, the site, uh, price. So that's uh, a bonus. If you are always looking for more videos and resources, and there's some, there's tons of great people on there. Michelle Nicolini, um, Craig Jones, uh, just go, go on there. There's awesome stuff happening. Awesome. Emily, I want to thank you so much for talking to me this morning. Uh, your perspective has been enlightening to me and I'm sure it will be for our listeners as well. Thank you, man. Thank I, I appreciate you guys uh, reaching out and, uh, it's always a pleasure working with you. I, I love having, um, intelligent conversations about this sport that we love. And I appreciate the thought that you guys had in not only constructing your questions, but, um, when, when I'm interviewed, it's one thing to just be asked questions and to keep answering. But the fact that you're pulling certain things that really resonate with you or things that you resonate, that you think will resonate really well with your audience, I think is, it says something about the, how much you guys value the work that you do. So I appreciate that. And I'm sure everybody else does too. Yep, I, I think uh, you and us, we have the same goals in jiu-jitsu, so it was a pleasure talking to you this morning. I'd like to thank Emily for being on the show. Uh, man, I really appreciate her taking the time out to do that, and I appreciate all she does for our community. So thank you, Emily. Yep, and thank you, Joe. That was a, a great interview, and I really appreciate that, and, and you guys make a good team. All right, so if, if you like the show, uh, tell a friend. Share, share, share it with them on Facebook or or get it to them somehow. That's how we grow the show. We appreciate you guys supporting us that way. And uh, speaking of supporting us, 
Gary is an athletic supporter. And so if uh, <laughs> you are an athlete and you'd like to train with Gary or Byron, you can find them up at Wichita. And uh, if you're in the Houston area, I'd love to train with you as well. You can let us know you're in the area uh, by getting in touch with us on our Facebook page. Yeah, speaking of, like Joe said, I was an athletic supporter. You know, you always want to make sure you wash that athletic supporter. You know, wash your gi, wash your athletic supporter. Because if you don't, man, we could have a growing problem of ringworm, Mercer, and staff. And uh, I think this week we do have an article uh, from Dirty White Belt. Uh, kind of crazy, uh, Dirty White Belt. And we're going to talk about how to avoid staff, ringworm, and MRSA while doing BJJ. You know, Gary, first I'd like to say... You know, it's a crazy superstition that some guys have to not wash their belt. And it's kind of disgusting. But I'm glad they think their belt holds the mojo and not their athletic supporter. <laughs> <laughs> that could be worse. Yeah, I agree with you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, I can tell you are, Joe. I'm a, I'm a guy that, that washes my belt as, where, as well. I mean, it's a, it's a percent of my my uniform it's a percent of my gi i don't know if it's material wise it's actually pretty big because it's so long it could, it could be one to five percent that's of what she said material uh, i hope so <laughs> not. she did not he calls you on it yeah i've never heard that before <laughs> but it's so why would you not wash five percent of your gi that doesn't make any sense well hold on byron let me just be devil's advocate um do you wash your belts like regular clothing belts, you know, that you're wearing on your jeans? No, but I also don't put my belt buckle in anybody else's face. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what she said. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, Gary, I, I don't wash my regular belts, but they don't I'm just sweaty. messing with you. No, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> But yeah, I was just wondering, like, do people wash their regular belts too? I think the like, does anybody? I think that for me, the biggest. And the, so what we have here at the on the dirty white belt thing is a. It's really an infographic, which is really nice. Like you could, this thing is so nice. You could print it up and, and post and it at your gym. A, yeah, because sometimes it's hard to have these discussions with people about cleanliness and and the way you smell and and taking a shower, like. People need to know these things, and maybe an infographic is an easier way to tell somebody than, hey, dude, you're coming in here. You know, I understand you work a job where you're sweaty all day long and you're, you're you know, getting dirty and you come in here, you want to train. Maybe you should hit our showers before you get on the mat. <laughs> but uh, a, a lot of the good information in a, in a pleasant way on this. I really like infographics. I wish I could get my act together and make a few for for our page but these are nice it's, it talks about you always shower within a, an hour after training like put a priority on uh, getting clean again don't throw your clothes on and you know go out to eat and and then do some chores and run some errands and you know, try to go on a date and all these things like you're pretty dirty if if you're training jujitsu the way that most of us do to where you're getting really sweaty and getting other people sweating you're like it's really if you think about it you should be showering as soon as you really can uh my routine is i throw myself in in my vehicle i drive home i throw that stuff in the laundry and then i am i'm in the shower i'm in the shower within five minutes of getting home and i don't really go anywhere after i leave to the gym i just go right home pretty simple you just stay home the rest of the day no, like after leaving the gym, I, I go home and shower. And if it's if I train in the morning, I have the whole day ahead of me. But okay, I, like, I was thinking that was weird when 
if you train in the morning and you don't leave the house the rest of the day. I'm done. What, what, if I if it's not just why leave the house? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why you're such a good guy, Byron. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you live, breathe, eat, sleep jujitsu. I like that. One thing that I never really thought of is uh, one of the tips on here is using like a uh, a type of a. A, a cleanser that doesn't uh, leave your skin dry and cracking, which could cause a potential um, an opening in your skin for infection. And I'm not the I, I just use usually regular soap. We've been uh, given some different uh, really nice soaps from some listeners, and really appreciate those. But uh, you know, uh, I'm in the habit of just using just some soap <laughs> after those have those those were gone and. And sometimes my skin, especially in the wintertime, does get dry and it does crack. And, and I could easily see that as something that, you know, your skin is your is like a layer of defense from, from infections and from bacteria and, and funguses. And when it fails like that, it cracks open. That's what the bacteria want a chance at. That's where they're going to start their infection. So if you can just prevent, like we're all going to get cuts and scrapes and that sort of thing that happens. But if, if your skin's just cracking from your own personal hygiene... You probably should change it. And like my wife's always saying, put lotion on your hands. Your hands are so dry. I probably should. <laughs> I'm not good at that. But I, I should listen to her and, and uh, start doing that sort of thing as well. But I didn't I didn't really realize that just the – it all starts, you know, like preventing ringworm, staph infection, and these sort of things starts with the healthiness of your skin. Like are you starting off with healthy skin or unhealthy skin? I like that, Byron. I That was one I never even thought of. I, you know, I've always – known to be clean, you know, wash quickly, uh, you know, if you can't wash, you know, have the wipes, you know, put your gear, you know, wash that separately, do that right away. But I never really thought about dry skin and, you know, the cracks in your skin is, uh, like you said, a breeding ground where the bacteria wants to go to uh, cause some issues. And we definitely want to tap that bacteria out. Tap it out. So uh, Byron shared this article with us last week. I actually looked at it last week and uh then when i was at the gym i thought about something i did and then i thought am i doing other things that are not uh really hygienic think about all the little things you do so i went to the gym and um i, I have for eight years packed my bag the same way every time flip-flops on the bottom belt next pants next jacket next and when i get to the gym I need my flip-flops first and my pants. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I'm taking all this stuff out, and I realized that this particular day, I just took my gi top out and just threw it on the floor. Well, it's the dressing room floor, and you know the restroom's right there. And I thought, man, that's not good hygienic practices. I, the floor looks clean. I assume it's clean. It, I'm there before class, but you know, I probably shouldn't take that assumption. So I'm start. I start packing my bag the other way now. Simple thing. And then I thought at one of the gyms I train at, there's um, some sort of exercise machine that's just used as a coat hanger, as so many exercise <laughs> machines are. And it's got a bunch of it's got a bunch of geese and belts on it. And I think these are like for visitors to borrow, you know, or for somebody to wear if they f- show up and oh, I forgot my gi top or something. But what happens is I, I was thinking about I- I'm imagining back last time I was there, guys come in from training. And they throw their dirty gi on top of that 
so they don't have to throw it on the floor while they change, and then they put it in the bag. So we've got these keys here. I got to mention it to these guys. We got these keys here that we're letting people wear, but class after class after class, people are throwing their so sweat soaked stuff on top. So um, yeah, there's the there's the basics that everybody knows about. But when you think about it, there's there's little things that you could be doing that could be problematic, and it, it's probably worth uh, putting some thought into it and and stop doing those things. That's a good point, Joe. Um, I'll tell you my routine. If it and maybe you could you could think if it maybe would help you. I don't know. My I don't put my my flip flops in my bag at all. I my bag has a detachable uh, strap. It's like a duffel bag style, and I can unhook the strap, and then I run that through the like the flip flop part of the flip flop. <laughs> run that through the flip flop, so they're attached to the to the strap, and then I I. I latch that back to the little hook it has, so it's now a strap again, and I can walk in my bag. They stay on the outside of my bag because I think when everything's clean, my my flip flops are still pretty dirty. Like that, I think my flip flops are the the weakest link in my whole system because I don't wash them. Uh, you know, my feet are pretty gross when I put them on uh, when I come home, and it, like I should be sanitizing my flip flops or do something with that. But I don't. Put, a, I don't put that- them in my bag at all. That's a good point about sanitizing your flip-flops because if you put them on when you're sweaty and that sweat just gets all over your flip-flops, after a few goes, is it really much uh, worse to just walk off the mats and bare feet? Yeah. I'm sure it still is worse to walk off the mat and bare feet, but Byron, you got a good point that uh, uh, flip-flops, might you might want to sanitize them. At least I, weekly. Yeah, if I yeah, well, if I'm spraying the mats down with like a chemical sanitizer, I always put my flip flops next to the mat, which they're there anyway, and I just hit them with that too. <laughs> nice. What I do, Byron, I, I do it kind of just like you, but I get a new pair of flip flops every time I train. Well, we're not all that rich. Way like I don't Harry. have to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, some <laughs> so, of, I'm over know, here trying to catch uh, coonskins and and, yeah. and making hats with like a little tail. Well, you should out the make back. your own uh, flip flops with them, but you know, so I. I throw away my flip-flops every time I wear them after one time. So last year while training, I bought two pairs of flip-flops. That's smart. <laughs> one, one to wear on the mat to, to the edge of the mat and then one to wear away. Yep. So I That's trained cool. twice last year. <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of uh, shoes and jujitsu, you guys see Pete Roberts is making boots now? Who's Pete Roberts? I, yeah, I have no idea. Origin. He's the, uh, oh, the owner of yeah, the owner of Origin Geese, and oh, uh, okay. they're, they're making boots. Cool. So if you want to, if you need some work boots and want to support the jiu-jitsu community, I think he's going to have some for sale before hey, long. You know what? And if he wants boots with the fur, have him give me a call because I've got, <laughs> I've got coon skin, I got beaver fur, I got you know marmot, fox, whatever, you, whatever you get in Canada. Yeah. A, I threw an A in there. Yeah. I'll throw them all a boot. Yep, flying squirrels. You got it all. <laughs> Gary's over here changes my little pony flip flops every couple of uh, training sessions, and I'm hooking people up with fur. There you go. Did I ever show you guys my my little pony uh, training <laughs> video? If you want to share that with us, we'll get it out there, Gary. Um, I don't know if that if you if that's more of a work thing or not. <laughs> can that be public? It can be public. Oh man! I don't know who would want to watch twenty minutes of what we did. But, I'll put uh, it on the YouTube channel. I was if proud you of it, Gary. <laughs> I was proud of it. G- Gary and another grappling buddy work, you know, at the same place, and and uh, they had to make a, a how to be safe with the internet type IT of a security. video, IT security video, and it 
because I know you guys, it's hilarious. And it's just, and it's like, it, the having to say it, there's probably like five minutes of information in it, but you guys made this big elaborate storyline. <laughs> and it's like, this is an amazing training video. Where do you, where do you see what we got planned for next year? We're actually going to put some thought into it <laughs> and uh, we're going to blow this place up. <laughs> so look for that to be released soon in the, on the, on the YouTube channel, if Gary yeah. thinks it's a yeah, good that, idea. I'm telling you, that's going to be a huge event, you know, when uh, that does get released on our YouTube channel. But I know you guys really want to know about the hugest, hugest event ever, and it is the second annual BJJ Brick event, June 14th, June 16th, June 14th to June 16th, Fox Fitness, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, We're going to have Samir Chantre. We're going to have Gina France and... They've both been on this show. They have both been up to Fox Fitness before for seminars. So we know how incredible both these people are. Um, but uh, we have a link to it on the show notes. We, so, A lot of you listeners came down last year, so we got to meet you. Um, check it out, foxfitnessbjj.com. Uh, thank you to Jake Fox, Kim Fox for hosting this thing. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to uh, see Joe. I haven't seen Joe in a year, so uh, it's going to be great to get put in a headlock by joe and get beat up as always but uh thanks for uh beating me up joe yep, yep. so again that's june 14 and 16 uh 15th we're going to the beach take the day off <laughs> <laughs> we got some great beaches in wichita kansas as joe always says the vacation destination yeah i don't know about that it is if you look the at the map <laughs> it will be the vacation destination. it will be june 14th 15th and 16th. Yep. The, the, the 14th is it's a Friday. This is Father's Day weekend, so uh, you could maybe even use that as a, as a way to go. But uh, the 14th is kind of a evening thing. Since it's a Friday, you're getting in town. We're going to do like an open mat in the evening. Uh, just good times having, you know, meeting everybody and, and doing some training. And then the 15th will be Gina and, and Samir teaching uh, seminars. And 16th, uh, I think it'll be us teaching a seminar and, and doing some training with you guys. So, man, it's going to be a great weekend. It's got hey, some Byron, meals one, planned as well. Hey, Byron, one thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, a couple of years ago, I thought this was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, and My new hairstyle? You know, actually, I don't think you've ever changed your hairstyle. I it's just gotten like less. the seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, it's just gotten less since I've known you. <laughs> it has gotten thinner and gray. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, hey, remember a few years ago you had... I think it was Father's Day. Bring your yeah. father to BJJ. You know, I just thought that was something pretty cool. Um, you know, maybe uh, next year we'll start try that again. I just thought it was that would be cool if that thing actually took off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we turned it into a BJJ holiday as, you know, bring your father. I guess we could even do a Mother's Day or, you know, too bad we don't have kids' days. Um, but uh, I just thought that was one cool thing. I know you really uh, – you know, did around town here. That was and, one of my, uh, that's one of my favorite jujitsu days. Like, yeah. I, I really like my dad and, and, and love him and, and respect him. And he's never done anything like jujitsu. And yeah. it's just like, dad, how about this? He said, okay, if that's, if you want to do that. And uh, so he, he was on board and we got a few other people's dads or a couple of grandfathers on the mat. And, and we showed him some, Basic jujitsu. My my real concern was I don't want to get anybody's dad in here and get him hurt because my, yeah. you know, my you know my dad was born in 1950. Like I don't want him getting hurt. Like that's not what that's not intention. It, but also these guys are kind of competitive. They want to they want to do it and do it well and and push and so it it worked out great. We had a great time. We got some really cool pictures. I got I was fortunate to get a cool some cool pictures. You know, doing jujitsu with my dad. 
and uh, yeah, I would urge you if if you you know live in the same city as somebody in your family that you want to train with, just bring him a day, just or or, or try to get the you know that's one thing that was cool about Jake Fox, the Fox Fitness. He's like, I told him, like, absolutely, let's do it. He's on board 100%. Like, tell your coach, I'd like to, to bring in, you know, my dad or, you know, let's, let's do a kid's day. Let's say you don't have a kid's program. Do, like, everybody bring their kids on Friday and we'll we'll have a special kid's class and see if we get any interest from this. It's just kind of a kickstart it. Or let's bring our wives in and teach basic, you know, a couple of different moves to, to our wives if it's, a, you know, it's a bunch of dudes hanging out in here. Um, and let them meet each other, make it a more family environment. Where we bring in our boss. You know, the guy. <laughs> now that would be a fun day. I'll bring one of my fire chiefs in and, and yeah. uh, teach me a little bit like, about jiu hey, I'm getting a raise, right? If I do, I'll let you out of this move. If not, uh, I'm going to keep going. Yep. That's, that's, uh, Gary, I think you're on to, you know, all my stuff was just nothing compared to that idea. You, you've won the podcast today, Gary. Oh, that's, that's impressive. I, I'm pretty happy about that. So, uh, I'm also, you know, the re- I think the reason I won the podcast is, you know, I just don't get tired when we're podcasting. You know, I can just go for a long time. And, you know, it reminds me of a question we just got from one of our listeners. Uh, you know, he wrote into us, you know, I get tired too fast during rolling. What can I do? Joe, Byron, what advice do you have? So there's there's a couple things that that I would want to consider right off the bat or why are you getting tired it, it might just be that you're not in in that good of shape like physically speaking if you were to try to run uh, a couple of miles or something like that or do a cardiovascular exercise it would be very difficult for you and so you're you're dealing with 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 like being in shape and and, and having to improve that that might be it that's great that's easy fix if you want to get better at, you know, increasing your cardio on, on the mat, get in better shape. I think that's usually not the first problem, especially if you're newer at jujitsu. The, the, one of the big problems is your body is fighting like it's actually in a fight. So you, like, we're not training. So you're getting adrenaline rushes. When you're being choked, your body is afraid like you're going to die. You're, you're having... An accelerated heart rate, you're having, you know, your grips are being made stronger than they need to be made. And all these things are happening with you. And you're just wearing yourself out when it's not necessary. A lot of times a white belt will get uh, mount on me and start going to work. And they just are breathing so heavy. I'll say, calm down and try to figure out what you want to do for an attack. And it's like, I'm cool and relaxed. Not because I have a better cardio system, but because I'm not nervous about anything that's happening to me. And and they're not because it's like they're getting a chance to get mounted on a black belt or um, the, the word I'm going to escape in a second or something. I don't know. But just try to calm yourself down and say it's okay to get tapped out a couple times. Like that's perfectly fine. And, it, you know, if I get caught in an armbar, if I get caught in a choke, I'll tap and we'll reset and do it again. And just, just, to, t- just to give yourself that this is part of training and it's okay to get caught. Let's just relax. Let's, let's, let's start uh, observing jujitsu and learning in this process. I think that'll increase most beginner and a lot of even blue belts. Like it'll just increase your ability to roll by like 30 to 80%. I don't know, like a lot because you just wear yourself out trying to fight. It's like doing a tournament. When you go to a tournament, 
I've had this experience. The first match, yeah, it's five minutes long. I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I could roll for an hour and a half at the gym, but one match, it's like that wiped me out. I was fighting like my body didn't know the difference between life and death. Like that, like this is a real fight. No, it's not. <laughs> there's rules. There's you know we're competing. This is a competition. So the ability to kind of calm things down with yourself will greatly increase your ability to roll longer in jujitsu. Gary, what do you think about that? Just a heads up, Gary. Uh, Joe got a call from work. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I could. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I had a little work emergency there, but I put it to bed. And I, th- I think another one. You know, you're talking about Byron. Uh, you know, you're talking about fighting and you know, maybe spazzing out, you know, using too much energy. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of times people forget to breathe. Uh, you're in a position, it's not the most comfortable. You may be in an uncomfortable position. You may have your arm twisted around, your head twisted to the side, but do not forget to breathe. Um, I think breathing is very important to, uh, to keep you going, to keep fueling your body, to keep air in your lungs, um, uh, to keep you going to the next position. So breathe, breathe, breathe. Yeah, just try doing anything with your breath, holding your breath, and you're, it's going to be hard. Yeah, and Unless, one thing that, that I've heard when it comes to fighting in general is that um, we each kind of have an aerobic level that uh, we can work at and, and almost work forever. And it's when we get into the next level like when we dip into the gas tank so to speak when when you put out those bursts that's when you start to empty your tank and and so when you get stuck in a position and you just ah, kind of spaz out to get out of it you're not just a little tired after that but that's kind of energy you just don't get back and the more you do that the tireder you get in as each roll goes by so yeah like byron said it's really important to just relax uh, if you're stuck figure it out yeah it's 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 really amazing how hard you're working and like there are times in history you work very hard and that's very valid you know to win a scrambler to get out of something or to finish something like you might be exerting yourself a bit but most of the time it just is is not as high of a pace as wrestling like it's it's more of uh there's a lot of waiting, a, a lot of small little battles that are being won and fought that aren't using your major major <clears throat> major muscle groups. Easy for me to say, but uh, you're just probably working too hard. <laughs> so yeah, good hey, good question that comes up quite a bit. Hey, so one thing I've heard, guys, here's a question for you. One thing I've heard is there are kind of safe places to rest during a, a roll, and there's places where you stop to take a rest, and and it's bad news. Would you say that for somebody who's having a hard time, they're getting tired easy, that maybe they should look for those safe places and kind of figure them out and and look for places where they can rest and catch their breath without uh, paying consequences for it? What I found I run into is, you know, let's say I'm on the bottom. I, I feel like a lot of times if I get half guard, I can rest a little bit. But I notice what happens when I do rest, my guard gets passed. Uh, and then, you know, let's say I have your back. And let's say I want to rest a little bit. And the next thing I know, the guy reverses me. And uh, he's now he's in my guard or, you know, in side control. So I, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm not the best person <laughs> to to answer that question because, uh, you know, I, I do rest. I, you know, but uh, it just seems like every time I, I try to rest, it backfires on me. And, and I'm not saying that I you know, and one of those people that can go forever. Cause I sure as I can't, I mean, I can at 
my slow pace, which I roll at. But, you know, when that pace gets turned up, I, I'm like what you said, Joe, uh, you know, that gas taking seventy quick and it doesn't come back. Um, but Byron, I'd like to hear your thought there. So, you know, Gary mentioned uh, like resting in a the examples you gave, just examples, but more of a neutral position. But definitely ability to rest in a dominant position, you know, side controller mount or back. Like if you feel stable, take, take a deep breath or two, collect yourself. And, and I, I will remind people, especially this is, you know, less than a month, typically white belt uh, person I'm grappling with, they get on mount and they're, they're just going 100% really hard trying to work my arm to, you know, an exposed position and, and really breathing hard. I'll say, take it, take, I know you're getting tired. This is later in the round. Take a deep breath, collect yourself. And when you're ready, start going. Like you're winning right now. You shouldn't be, you, you should be putting me at a, at a energy deficit. You shouldn't be doing the opposite. Now with the same person, I'm able to really rest in, in those positions. Like we've talked about the six game for BJJ. One of the games is ragdoll where you do the barrier minimum to try not to get tapped out. And that game has taught me a lot about being relaxed in pretty bad spots and knowing that fine line between too relaxed, I get tapped and, and just, just, I'm still safe. And that might just be having good frames while I'm in side control on the bottom or having my arms in kind of tight while someone's in mount or, you know, you know, proper hand fighting while someone's on my, on my back, these things like I can still relax pretty good in, in those positions, but you know, like in those, it's, it's, it's considerably more dangerous. You're likely not dangerous, but more likely to get caught. Uh, from a sudden movement but try relaxing when you're in a good spot or a spot you're comfortable with and a lot of that depends on your training partner like if someone's really hard to hold down in in mount you try to relax they're probably gonna escape (laughs) but it takes less effort to hold to you know to relax in it shouldn't take effort to relax it takes less uh energy because you still have to use some of your output if you could use your body weight or the, the natural advantages of the position uh, yeah, I, I I think you're right, Joe. Yep. Thanks. You explained that well, Byron. It Appreciate took me about it. 20 minutes too long, but <laughs> I got it out. <laughs> to make a long story short. <laughs> <laughs> make a short story really long. But uh, another thing I want to do, uh, we're running a little bit long here. Gary, I know that the podcast has time limits, right? Right. right. I guess. I don't <laughs> no, not really. We could make the show as long as we want. But I, I want to uh, mention our Patreon. And our newest supporter, Brian, uh, just signed up here in April. Thank you, Brian, for supporting the podcast. With thank Brian, you, Brian. Thanks, man. Thank, thank you very much. What Brian has done is he, he's listened to the show probably a few times and said, man, I like the show. I would like to support these guys and what they're doing to help them continue to, to do what they're doing and possibly even grow and, and become something even better. Can you believe that? Even better? There's possibility for this. And uh, he's gone to the link in the show notes or on the website for Patreon. He's pledged a dollar per episode. Uh, that means a lot to us. And, and really, thank you so much uh, for your support. And a, a few more listeners did this. It would make a huge difference in, in the podcast that we're bringing to you and what we could do uh, and some other things. But uh, what I've done is I've mailed Brian a 5-inch BJJ Brick Geek Patch and a sticker. This is just tokens of appreciation for, for showing the support. And, and Brian, if you want to join a private Facebook group, send me an email at bjjbrick at gmail.com and put a link into to there in the email, like in the envelope of the email of your uh, Facebook um, link, <laughs> Facebook profile, I guess, wherever you are on Facebook. Uh, 
and and I'll get you added as a friend. Once we're amigos, I'll get you added into the private group. That's kind of how private groups work, I guess. I can't tune to add anybody not, but I'd love to have you as a friend as well, Brian. So we're you're all all listeners are invited to join us on on uh, Patreon. It really means a lot to the to us for your support. So thank you, Brian. Yet again, I made that longer than I should have been. <laughs> I got to practice that these get these a little shorter. <laughs> well, you know, Byron, what you're having issues with is, you know, maybe you need a little bit better coaching. And, um, you know, I think everybody will want to tune in next week because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about it's the, it's the uh, uh, episode where we don't have a guest, Joe, Byron, and I. We're going to talk about the role of your coach, um, you know, what the role should be, uh, how that coach can help you. And maybe that's what you're having issues with right there, Byron, by going too long. We don't have a uh, you don't have a good podcast coach. I need a podcast coach. That's that's true. Gary. I heard you. I heard you've you've like run the most successful basketball team in, in the history of uh, of uh, mini ball. Will you be my We're coach? One in nine. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, hey, if, if that's successful, uh, will uh, will you be my coach when the season's over? <laughs> I don't we're one you, and nine, but we're having yeah. fun though. <laughs> I don't know how you you quantify success, Byron, but uh, I wish you were my boss at work. <laughs> oh man, uh, this has been a fun, fun time here, and, and yeah, thanks for Emily for for hopping on here and sharing uh, some of her knowledge with us. I look forward to yeah. next week, man. This is gonna be a great yeah. time. Once again, Emily, uh, thank you for coming on, and, and for anybody who. Uh, you know, listen to her, check out, you know, she's got so many videos out there that have helped myself, Joe, Byron, and uh, probably the majority of the people listening. We've all watched her videos and learned from her, uh, you know, just an amazing grappler. And uh, she's got a lot out there on the internet, on the interwebs that can help you out. Yep. We'll put links in the show notes or just type her name in, in Google and she'll probably pop right up. So anyway, till then, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, get better, guys. We'll see you on the mats. Wash your geese, wash your belts, and do something to clean your uh, flip-flops somehow. <laughs> Byron, when you're saying wash your belt, you mean your gee belt All the or belts. your regular belt? All the belts. And, okay. and the color of your, your regular belt should match your actual uh, jiu-jitsu belt. So okay, thank you. It could be tough, but make that happen. <laughs> thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>